0: to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Funderberg. I am joined once again by my constant, consistent compatriot, Martin Kessler from the wilds of Canada, from the wilds of Manitoba, if I'm understanding correctly. I'm joined by Martin Kessler. How are you doing today, Martin?
1: Uh, tired and cranky. How are you?
0: <laughs> well, I told you I've, I've damaged both of my ankles, so I have severe ankle sprains. So I'm in continuous pain right now, and then my and then my as I was saying to you, my my anticoagulant blood medication makes my gums bleed sometimes. So I have like continuous mouthful of blood this morning and broken ankles. So you know, but I'm good. Uh, I have a positive outlook is, on life. My- this is a good
1: good state for us both to be in to be talking about uh avverter fastbender. And what are we talking about today, Martin? <laughs> The BRD Trilogy, which I guess is for Bundesrepublik Deutschland Trilogy, and not uh, anything sexual like I first assumed when I rented these movies back in university. I was like, okay, I know BDSM is a thing. (laughs) Is BRD a thing? And there's like a picture of, uh, I think on the Criterion box that there's like this uh, close up of like a woman in old fashioned lingerie. I'm like, is this a is this like a sex thing trilogy? <laughs> so that was my initial kind of curiosity in watching these movies for the first time.
0: Well, it's funny that you that you mentioned that because I was thinking about why people don't remember in the VHS era in the 90s, it was fucking impossible to see anything. It was fucking impossible to see movies. And I had heard about Fassbender somehow and wanted to see any Fassbender movie whatsoever. And video stores just simply didn't have them. You know, I had this list actually of 20 movies that i had like read about or heard about that I wanted to see. And one thing on the list was any Fassbender movie and any Fred Wiseman movie. I think those were like the only two I crossed off out of the 20 in my high school time. Because, you know, the video stores, there's this weird nostalgia. You'll see it on Twitter sometimes of the like, oh man, these video stores, think of all the undiscovered gym out there. And it's like, they these places didn't have shit. If you want to watch these three movies right now, subscribe to the Criterion channel and you can watch them today. If you want to own them, you can order the DVDs and have them later this week. I'm sure there's other options for streaming them. They might be on HBO Max or the TCM, who,
1: who the fuck knows, but you can see these movies, right? I still remember the days when like, you know, a video cassette of a head was going for like over $100 or, you know, to get Titicut Follies, you had to go through the whole like mail order system yeah. to try to get a hold of these movies. It, it was not necessarily easy I, to I find would, certain things.
0: Yeah. In the early eBay days, I would sell marked up versions of Titicut Follies. I was a I was a scalper and a scumbag. I would buy them from Wiseman and then put them up on eBay immediately. And they were expensive. From Wiseman, I think they were like 130 yeah. bucks for a tape. But then you could sell them for like 260 But people didn't know how to get them from Wiseman was the thing. How to get any of this stuff was, was very difficult. And I had seen Maria Braun in high school. And I was thinking about why did I watch Maria Braun? And I think I had a similar impression to you. John Waters, I had heard talking about Fastbender. And all I remember, I was trying today to remember what did what did he say about it that made me want to see it? And I just remember he like was being like, and i love all of Fassbender's movies, even the boring one, Effie Breest. And now that I've oh. seen it, I was like, Why are you so hard on Effie Breest? <laughs> Evie Breest is one of the best ones.
1: Well, it's it's like the unofficial fourth member of this trilogy, I feel like, in a way.
0: They they should swap it out with uh with uh with Veronica Voss, if you ask me. Yeah. No, but it does that doesn't make any sense because it's a period piece and blah blah blah. But I know what well, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean, but um, but I just had the I guess coming from John Waters and the way he made them sound weird and perverse. I had the impression that they would be like these deeply perverted, weird movies. And that's Fassbender's reputation, I think, because of his personal life. But they're not. They're very sort of gentle, almost sexless movies. They can be sensuous at times, but they're not perverted movies at all you know uh if anything they're about sort of like a sexual emotional constipation most of the time (laughs) you know And um, before we get into it, we should do like Fassbender in a thumbnail for people who aren't listening. He's one of those filmmakers. For a long time, I used to say the only two filmmakers that matter are Louis Boonwell and Fassbender, right? That those are the only two. I don't really stand by that. But I think that's in terms of the stature of where stature of where I hold him. He's definitely on that level of, okay. what's the most important filmmaker in the world? Well, it's one of those two. me you know although we'll get into it i don't (laughs) we'll get into my complex relationship to him but for me like i know all about this fucking guy i know i've been living with his films for a long long time i know the story in the background so we should just give a thumbnail of who fassbender was and i think that there's what there's there's three basic things about him right he was incredibly fucking prolific. He made yes. so many goddamn movies. In a very in, short
1: amount of time. a
0: very yeah. short amount of time. And these three things are all interconnected, right? These three <laughs> things yep. are all interconnected.
1: He it's made funny, inter- like, uh, I, I, Hannah Shigula, who we're going to be talking about, she was saying about, like, how long their, their falling out was before she came back for, like, Marriage of Maria Brunt. And, like, in my mind, I, I didn't even realize that they had Yeah, had this like period of falling out because it's only like a four-year gap, five-year gap. No, which like uh, you know, for Fassbender is enormous. But when you you go through most filmmakers' filmographies, and like a four or five-year gap of not working with the same actress is not like usually a huge deal. It might be one. It
0: it might be one movie with Fassbender. It's like six movies and three TV shows. You know, so incredibly fucking prolific. Second thing, interrelated. He fucking loved cocaine. No man has ever loved cocaine as much as fastbender. Cocaine is a really unhip drug now, like cokeheads are something that I think their reputation took quite a hit in the 80s and sort of never recovered. It's well, become well, like yeah. a rich dickhead drug. But man,
1: did Fassbender love cocaine. I don't know if it's true, but they said like some of the films, it would even be worked into the budget.
0: Yeah. He has he has an entire movie he has a proposal that you can read. He wanted to make a movie called Cocaine and it's essentially like his his typically erudite intellectual take on man coke is awesome and being coked up is great. You know, it's very funny. It's like gee, I wonder why that movie didn't get made. So he's incredibly prolific. He loved cocaine and he died when he was 37. Those are like the three main things that you know about him. He died incredibly young. He made an incredible amount of movies and he died of a cocaine overdose cocaine and barbiturates when he was just uh when he was just 37 um and it's now that i'm 43 it's it's incredible to think of like a 37 like 35 33 like this kid making the movies he did, you know, it's just really incredible to think about him this way. I guess maybe the fourth thing, too, is that he was sort of sexually multifarious. He was married to Ingrid Kavan, an actress for a while, and his editor, uh, Julia Lorenz, also has dubiously claimed that they were married, but he also had relationships with men and frequently his relationships were inexorable from his uh, his his filmmaking relationships. Like I mentioned, Kavan and Lorenz are people he worked with. The actors that he would work with, like Gunther Kaufman, who'll come up in, in discussing the BRD trilogy. Uh, he just, you know, Udo Kier, he found as a sex worker and put him into movies as how the legend goes. I'm not sure how true that is. Again, there's a lot of sort of mythos around Fassbender, which is funny because unlike a lot of great directors, like you have people like Wells and Goddard or even Pasolini who are these incredible fucking blowhards who just wanna pump themselves up to an incredible amount. They're different kinds of blowhards, but they definitely seek to build the mythology of themselves in, in a way and sort of have overtly larger than life personalities. Fastbender's a terrible interview. He's an incredibly boring interview. He doesn't like talking about himself. He's very terse in interviews. He doesn't like to analyze his work much. And he doesn't even have antagonistic relationships with interviewers. It's sort of like they'll ask him a complicated question and he'll go, mm, Yeah, I don't know. You know, and that's what every interview with him is like. It's almost unreal for how vital and full yeah. of life and intensity and conflict and tumult his personal life and his films are that he's such a boring interview.
1: I guess there was a biography that came out shortly after he had passed away, which was more like, um, like here's all the scandalists. And Oh, oh I have that book also, but,
0: uh, <laughs> you mean the Stan, I, I know which
1: one. Yeah. And, about. and like, I, I think like a lot of the, the reputation and the the kind of mythologizing, Came a little bit out of that. Like, I, I don't know how much of it. I mean, I wasn't around while he was alive, so I don't know how much of that was there while he was alive. But I'll hear people like refer to like, oh, did you know he did this or did that? And like, it's coming from that particular biography. So I...
0: Well, it's also important yeah. to remember about him, unlike... Fellini or Truffaut or Bergman, in his time, he sort of died right as his career was taking off. He was incredibly prolific, but Maria Braun was his first real hit, right? And then he started like uh, winning awards and festival awards and getting known internationally by the time of Veronica Voss, which is his penultimate film. So the three films in the BRD trilogy that we're going to be talking about today are The Marriage of Maria Braun, Veronica Voss, And Lola. Those are the three movies. And that's when like his career was finally starting to take off when he died. He was not a Titanic figure in his day. He was sort of and there's I would say a full third of his career. Those movies were even unknown in their own time, basically leading up to the second phase of his career that starts with Merchant of Four Seasons. He's an extremely obscure director who's sort of getting by by the the Oberhausen tax credits, uh, the Oberhausen manifesto that led to the the tax credits. He's just sort of making these movies using the the tax shelter program and just able to turn them out. you know? And there's also a funny story that that Vin Venders tells about like how all of the there was this group of people that knew each other and they all wanted to go to the German film school, like the National German Film School, which was very prestigious. And Fassbender didn't get into it, right? He wasn't accepted to the film school and he used the money he would have used for his tuition to make his first three movies and in a year had made three movies instead of going to school and everybody in school was like, what are we fucking doing? We should have gone and made movies like Fassbender did. Um, and I would say he was like he was like a cult figure until at some point I really feel like in the DVD era is when it just became assumed like this guy's a level on the level of stature of a trufo, you know, or a good He was not making huge hits uh, on a consistent basis. He was not he was a very, very fringe figure. And that is not the case anymore. But just to to contextualize him a little bit, is he somebody that you've liked a long time? What's your relationship to Fassbender?
1: I guess I probably saw Ali Fears the Soul when I was in like late high school. And that was- That's, that I'm was sorry, so I should say
0: that was actually his first hit. That sort of got him the right. international financing. Th- that.
1: That's kind of uh, like for a lot of people who are curious about Fassbender, I'm like, you know, that's kind of the perfect one to start with. It's the Fastbender movie. You can show your parents. It's, you know, um, and then it's, the, it's there... the
0: one he tries to recreate
1: to some extent
0: in his yes. other films. It's like the
1: hit Although where he's it, like, it's funny when like, yeah. you know, I'm mean, coming off of Ali, Fear, it's the Soul. I remember watching Marriage of Mary Bronze for the first time. And the first like 20 minutes or so I'm like oh I know where this is going and then I wasn't right at all <laughs> like just based <laughs> on Ali Pierce's assault it's like oh he's not actually doing that over again uh yeah he's doing something different but I think like from there I kind of gradually worked my way forward in his filmography and watched like Fox and His Friends and Berlin Alexanderplatz but there's still like maybe a third of his movies I've never seen you know and eventually like i i went back and watched the earlier stuff uh, like um uh, love is colder than death and gods of the plague and that whole bunch,
0: i think which are, think, are less I my think,
1: yeah. thing than than like his his later films but um no he's not
0: good until merchant of four seasons some people will try and tell you love is colder than death is a great movie this is this is no i I, I, close I just watched to objectively it uh, wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't think that's a i mean like her trying to be Godard. I'm like, Ew. like that's not yeah. something I want to see. Um, Although
0: I do love about American Friend. We'll get to it when we talk about Maria Braun. American Friend has this insane final shot, which is a shot that's been slowed down. It's like a, a 20 second shot that's been slowed down to last like seven minutes yeah. or something where he's trying to get to feature length running time. So he just <laughs> extended the last shot Like infinitely,
1: that um, that was the one that reminded me the most of like a a Jim Jarmusch kind of a movie. Like yeah, you know how cool like look at the cool lighting and these guys sitting around a table and just like feeling the spade. Like I feel like you know his earlier stuff when he was he was like into the directing theater and like yes, he comes interested in the blocking. Like they feel very um, yeah. It's this weird mix of like filmed theater and also like I'm trying to be Jean Luc Godard. (laughs) Those early ones, it's like a weird mix where. You know, you almost feel like, thank God he discovered uh, Douglas Sirk.
0: Yes, but we should also mention, just to give background, people don't know, he comes out of the theater world. He was a theater director, and he had this theater troupe, the anti-theater, that he worked with on a lot of these, and especially those earlier films are very... Theatrically inclined uh, in a in a lot of ways they were he was controversial he was a somewhat controversial figure to the extent that he was on anybody's radar things like Katzelmacher, which is sort of a dry run for Ali Fear it's the soul um, the people were generally like I don't know what this guy's fucking up to but he's touching taboo stuff in a very Uh, erratic live wire kind of way in a very unmeasured kind of way. And then he makes this movie Merchant of Four Seasons. This is one of the few times like Marriage of Maria Braun where he slows down and basically like takes a year to write and conceive of and shoot a movie. And it enters into a new phase. As you say, at one point, he sees a bunch of movies, uh, films by Douglas Sirk and is like, oh, I don't want to be doing this like Godard pseudo genre theater, hybrid, I want to be doing Cirque. And he. I don't think he ever really does Cirque. I think he's a much, 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 much better filmmaker than Cirque, for one. I think he's a much more interesting director and much more intelligent director than Cirque. But he does find like, oh... I'm interested in melodrama and I shouldn't be afraid of movies that are just about intense relationships and about the intensity of the relationship. I shouldn't be afraid to have that be the entire plot. The plot doesn't need to be there's some guys with guns who want to do something or there's, you know, or there's cowboys. The plot can be these two people really, really love each other and can't be together. And that's enough of a plot for a movie.
1: I also rewatched a little bit of uh, Sir. I have uh, imitation of life and uh,
0: imitation uh, of life and all that heaven allows are all amazing. Allows and... Those the, are amazing. Those...
1: Everything else is fucking
0: terrible. The, those, those two are great. Comments.
1: Well, uh, I don't want to say the others are are awful. I mean, magnificent, I
0: magnificent obsession isn't
1: awful. Okay, well. Are, I, I'm not tarnished, saying anything
0: about I tarnished, that. <laughs> angel, tarnished angels <laughs> well, is I'll, I'll
1: just finish what, what I'm saying though. Like you, you <laughs> remember those like the way people talk about those films and the way you talk about like the influence on Fassbinder. Like you kind of remember, like oh, Imitation of Life and all that happened. Allows they look like Lola, right? No, they don't. They don't <laughs> look like those movies. You know, they they are colorful and they are beautiful, but it's like. I, like in my mind um all that heaven allows it's like all gelled lights and all like you know pinks and blues and like it really it doesn't actually look like that so uh, it, it was just sort of funny to go back and revisit them and like remind myself what those films actually look yeah. like like I, I think he takes you know a particular element that um Cirque was using and he kind of amplifies it and turns it into his own thing and this idea of like how do I get the film to express these emotions
0: yeah cirque clearly is a key for him that unlocks something i was going to say when getting the series together rewriting rereading a bunch of his writings and watching a bunch of the movies the healthier i get as a person right and as i've gotten older i've gotten healthier i was a very self-destructive unhappy person for most of my life and the healthier i get the more fastbender seems to me to be lost in a maze of his own design. He seems to have designed a labyrinth and gotten lost in it. And I think that's part of the reason he's an exceptionally boring interview is that he he sort of knows... He's gotten, he's built this space and can't find his way out of it. That the answers his art are leading him to are very different than the answers his politics are leading him to, right? And that the answers his heart are leading him to are very different than the answers his own desires and voracious appetites are leading him to. And I think that that's actually what makes them so strong and ironic and interesting of films. Is because of that, but he feels less and less like a master filmmaker. The more, and he's a very, very sloppy filmmaker. It should be mentioned yeah. that part of what about these movies, even like
1: the, the ones I love most, have like sometimes very glaring faults in them,
0: or um, they have like light stands or in the shot. You know, sure. he's that kind of a filmmaker. I mean,
1: I, I think like Hannah Shigula, Shigula, sorry, I keep watching it. <laughs> Hannah Shigula, uh, she said something about Fassbender that I I thought was interesting. That like she said, you know, he he might not have been a genius. Like he might not have actually been smarter than anybody else. He was just more honest, and like, yeah, that's kind of what made him special. is Is his ability to be open and honest about things that people kind of kept bundled up. And like for me, one of the most interesting things about Fassbender's characters are those. Ways that people can be contradictory. Yeah. That you can have one goal and it's sabotaging your desire, or the other way around, or just how people are kind of out of step with themselves. I think, like what you're describing about fassbender as a person, you can see that reflected in a lot of his characters. Oh, for sure.
0: He's somebody who is all about self destruction, both as a person and as his film. And as, and as, Somebody who was incredibly self-destructive. For me, it's always amazing to me how few artists deal with that theme. That self-destruction is is not really seen as a theme that often. It's very rare in movies to see somebody being self-destructive. And
1: I or think destroying what makes... the one you love also is, is something yeah. that comes up a lot.
0: Like well, the one you, we love is part of ourselves. Like... But but I think yeah. for a lot yeah. of people, when they talk about destruction of characters, especially politically minded filmmakers, the the outside forces of society are what destroy people, right? Yeah. But he's not he seems to understand that the things we identify as society or malevolent outside forces are actually just our own nature that the things we're defining as the outside world are actually just us, right? And that the person who shakes his fist um, at society should be shaking his fist at
1: himself, right? For for me, that's one one of the things that makes Ali Furies the Soul like a brilliant kind of reworking of all that heaven allows because like, it's not really about the, like, yeah, there are these like gossipy women and stuff like that in Ali Furies the Soul, but really like the, the part that feels most significant are the ways that, you know, they're cruel to each other, you know, they're yeah. cruel to the person they love when, you know, she's sizing him up or when he's kind of, you know, dismissing her at his work. Like, the ways that you can be cruel to the person that you love, like, I, I think, like, that's kind of more interesting than, like, oh, just this couple that society hates A consistent theme in his movies is that the victim loves
0: to become a victimizer and that the idea of oppression is complicated because the people who are on the bottom would love to turn their victimization around and then become victimizers, right? That the bullied loves to become a bully, right? That the person who's broken emotionally by somebody would love to turn around and break somebody else emotionally in response to it, right? That that the, the mechanics of oppression are very difficult to deal with and that there are almost no pure victims in the world. I think a lot of times in his films too, he's asking himself, what does it mean to be a bad person? Am I, Fassbender, a bad person? I have enough self-awareness of what it means to be bad to think about what it means to actually be a bad person. This is sort of rare for art to ask. A lot of... um. Art doesn't really ask, what does it mean to be a good person? That's that's like that kind of moralistic exercise you get in like, you know, um, Tom Brown's school days or something. You don't really get it in like real artworks. A lot of religious texts ask, what does it mean to be a good person, right? But it's not really something for art. A lot of art that asks the question of what does it mean to be a bad person comes to the resolution of well, it means to be secretly good. That's what it means to be a bad person. That the person who's stealing bread isn't bad. They're stealing bread to fill to feed their family, right? That the person who commits a murder, they're not secretly bad. They're secretly good under the pressures of society, you know, that it's a it's, is it the society that's crazy or the man who lives within it? You know, that kind of of cliche, you know, that that think about, you know even like popular Hollywood films like John Wick or something like, what does it mean to be a bad man like John Wick? Well, it means that you're secretly good, you know, that you're secretly a good-hearted person who kills your dog, who is just caught up in a bad system, right? In in more serious versions of this art, though, seeing the world from the perspective of a bad person is usually used to absolve them of moral responsibility for their bad acts, right? That's a lot of what the art does, That that is like, here's somebody you would think would be bad but let's see their perspective and absolve them and fassbender saying no i mean a bad person and i don't mean that in a judgmental way i'm not trying to trap them i'm gonna get them but i want to talk about what it means to do bad things to do morally wrong things. He's not judgmental. He's legitimately trying to understand and empathize with it to be that. He's trying to be that through his art in some way. He wants to see from their perspective, but I think he also wants to see if he can understand them and love them without leavening their badness or their wrongness, right? I think that that's genuinely part of his project, although he frequently has characters and we'll talk about in the BRD that are just bad, that are only bad. And I think that that, that's when his movies are at their weakness is when the bad characters are not given any opportunity except to represent badness. But I also think, you know, when we look at Lola there is some badness that I think he's genuinely representing in a fair way. You know, I think it is unsympathetic, and I think he doesn't do anything to make them less detestable. But I also think he's he's represented in Shukart's badness in a, in a correct way, a kind of asshole businessman's badness in a way that I think is is fairly fair to that character, even if there's no goodness. Veronica Voss, I think he forgets to make the villain anything other than a
1: cartoon villain sugar well you got to admit at least uh, sugar is charming right (laughs) i (laughs) I don't know i mean he's not my kind
0: of person at all
1: okay
0: he's not that's not that
1: that (laughs) i'm just trying to give him a a little little credit
0: (laughs) um so do you agree with all that i'm saying do you do you have any do you have any disagreements with sort of my characterization when I talk about him getting lost in a maze of his own design too I feel like when I read his writing like you read like his essay on like Michael Curtiz and it's genuinely ludicrous he just he's desperately trying to find a way to think of Curtiz whose movies he likes as an auteur and can't find the handle because he's probably not but like auteurism so important to him that he's like pushing around trying to find it. And he also, you know, he just loves to do stuff like make lists. He's a big list maker, like top 10 lists. And so he'll do like these lists of like the best films, the most important post-war German films, most interesting movies, and then put his own movies and like the number one and three slots. Like he loves doing <laughs> that too. It's very,
1: yeah, it's very- It reminds me of, uh, there was this interview with Jean-Luc Godard where um, he was asked like, well, you know, do you think, any of the French New Wave filmmakers reach their full potential or amounted to anything like truly important, amounted to their full promise. And Godard kind of thinks about it very seriously and considers and he goes, well, me perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) That was his answer to. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, what what you're saying about Fastbender making these lists and putting himself on them. It's funny, too,
0: because he does like he has lists of like top 10 soccer players. You know, he was just like in, in top 10 operas, top 10 songs, you know, and uh, and, you know, obviously into craft work and Leonard Cohen, what you would expect a 70s hipster to be into. He's he's all over it. Shall we get into the movies themselves? Do you think this is enough preamble for, yeah, for this, this is, to? Uh...
1: This was a good preamble. Can we talk about like the best introduction to the post German period ever? <laughs> Which is what? Picture of Hitler, close up, explosion.
0: <laughs> you know what that really reminds me of though is the clock at the beginning of Black Rain at the train oh, station yeah. where That's the, true. where the clock blows up because everybody yeah. in Japan knows what happened that morning at that time and seeing the clock getting yeah. blown up. It has it, a similar just...
1: like... This explosive, like, okay, now everything's different. Times have changed, like, in in that instant, almost, you know. And and our movie is history, with a bang! (laughs) Sure. (laughs) And then, like, um, I guess, well, we're talking about Marriage of Maria Braun. The whole beginning, when it's, like, the end of the war, the last days of the war after Hitler's dead, and, like, you know, it's this rushed marriage. And the way Fassbender plays it, it's almost like a slapstick comedy kind of a thing with them oh, like just sure. really trying to get married while this this place is under artillery fire and it's all blowing up and germany's falling apart
0: and they have to grab the justice of the peace and pull him back into the <laughs> yes. building to get it it no it's very it's it's slapsticky the way a lot of his anti-theater stuff has this exaggerated comedic quality it reminds me of a lot of of experimental theater that I've seen that has sort of broad gestures, broad physical gestures in it that reminds you of physical comedy, but they aren't necessarily played for comedy is the only way I can can delineate the difference is that they're as broad and strange and sort of inherently funny as uh, slapstick comedy, but you don't get the sense that you're necessarily supposed to be laughing at it in any way later the seats in the back you got to go big Uh (laughs) (laughs) well it's just more this sort of stylization the way in particular the anti-theater actors will like talk or shriek lines or stamp their feet or you know that kind of thing he tones it down for these three movies so these movies come late in his career the um marriage of maria braun is 1978 uh at this point he's made you know several dozen movies before he makes Marriage of Maria Braun. Maybe we'll say a dozen, two dozen and a half dozen movies, something in that sort of era. the TV is one he,
1: he really wants to take his time with. I guess he came up with the idea a couple years earlier and was like, oh no, this one's got to be done right. So he, he doesn't write the screenplay himself. Um,
0: yes, the only movie I believe in the entire... Uh, his entire like 40 some odd film oeuvre where he was not the primary screenwriter. He obviously adapted uh, quite a few movies like Corel, Despair, uh, Doll's House and notoriously plagiarized Colonel Woolrich with Martha. Uh, I think it's, I actually think it's kind of cool that his best film was an act of naked plagiarism, especially for like such a force of nature auteur for like his best movie to be uh... like, he stole it and got sued and had to put a credit on it.
1: Even Lola, uh, when it came out, did you read the like?
0: Yeah, that everybody's like.
1: Where he's like, okay, we're not saying it's Blue Angel, but it's Blue Angel.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's not based on Professor Unrat, but it is obviously Blue Angel. I think it's much better than Blue Angel, though, just like I think Martha is much better than for the rest of her life. Um, Yes. Like A Merchant of Four Seasons, this is one of those moments where he slowed down. And they're generally high watermarks. I think that his prolificness is one of his defining characteristics, but it's hard not to see this one and go, oh, maybe he should have written the story and hired screenwriters occasionally, because it does feel more polished and more focused than a lot of his other movies.
1: It does. And even just the way he stages stuff like oh, there's multiple locations. <laughs> and, you know, you can tell like just his thinking about it, that he's taking a little bit more time. He's trying to make it more like a conventional movie. I know, um, I think like Michael Bauhaus was talking about how... Michael Bauhaus
0: is the director of photography on this movie. Yes. He's probably more um, famous for going on to shoot some Scorsese Scorsese's, movies. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I think this is the last one they did together because uh, after this, he goes off and works with Scorsese. Yeah. Um, Fassbender
0: but... called uh, his relationship to Michael Bauhaus the most important relationship of his life, which I think says a lot about Fassbender and how he sort of used and treated his real lovers like trash that they were <laughs> disposable. That's like, I, you guys, you are only my actors and my boyfriends and girlfriends and lovers. He was my DP.
1: Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's something. Although look, it's funny, I would him as... Oh, like he's a cinematographer, but like a lot of my favorite Fastbender movies, he didn't actually. No, he didn't shoot uh, Lola. Schwarzenberger. No, he didn't shoot Lola. He didn't shoot um, uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz. Yeah, no, like I, I think like a couple of the, the last few ones that I really like, Um, you know, I think of like, oh, yeah, Michael Bauhaus, but they're not actually shot by him. Yeah, I think it's
0: the Bauhaus. Although Bauhaus did shoot Chinese roulette, which is an insanely shot movie. You can see where Scorsese gets his his ideas for how to move the camera from Chinese roulette of just the way the camera is constantly in motion and refocusing the audience through motion. It's a very, (laughs) I hate to take agency away from Scorsese, but a lot of Scorsese's style comes from Bauhaus's work on Chinese roulette you you can see the the changes uh in like what what happens to Scorsese's style between uh you know Mean Streets which is looked and shot very different than Goodfellas what happens to him and the answer is Michael Bauhaus happens to him
1: anyway like I, I remember he was talking about like Fassbender watching a lot of Hollywood films and referencing Hollywood films and trying to make Marriage of Maria Braun and like it does feel more like he's trying to make a conventional movie you know he's he's trying to make it look and feel and move the way that like a polished kind of hollywood type movie would um you know it, like i i don't want to say like real movie but it's like okay this one's <laughs> going to be like a real movie you know
0: well definitely later in his career i i would say that the last you in particular the sort of lola veronica voss carrell they do they are more stylized and they look more movie-ish they don't look like the early ones up through Merchant of Four Seasons, look like, let's get together and make a movie, a bunch of kids, the way early Jarmusch or a lot of American independent cinema of the 80s has that like, let's just get some people together and make a movie. And you can tell the limits to its resources are glaringly apparent. And there's sort of no, no idea of making it look like a movie. In his mid-period, he, he makes stuff, stuff begins to look more professional. They clearly have higher budgets, but they still look like Fassbender movies, I would say the the late period is when he starts to make them look slick. And as somebody who's not a big fan of Carel and Vanica Voss, I sort of go, oh, how sad am I that he, you know ended before that became what he was before that became what he was these sort of drying out artificial, overly, Stylized movies that he gets Andy Warhol to do the poster for. You know, like I don't know that I want the Hollywoodized version of it. I don't want to see the movie that Coppola brings him over to make. You know what I oh mean? Like I don't, I, I, I don't just want to see his Hamlet. What that, you
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been like?
0: And but we should mention that that yes. Maria Braun does come late in the game for him. So it's seventy-eight, and he dies, and and. 81 or 82? When does he actually die? Because I think Corel comes out after he dies. Yeah,
1: Corel came out after after Fassbender passed away. um, So the the Wikipedia page (laughs) open. I think he died in like 82, but uh, maybe between uh, between Veronica Voss, but before Corel came out. He dies
0: in 82. Yeah, he dies June 10th, 1982. So this is just a few years away from his death. But his, you know, like we said, the compressed quality of his career gives it such a distorted sense of time. Like this feels like not mid-period, but but pretty close to the mid-period, right? Pretty One of the closer to the mid-period films than being one of the actual late periods, even though it's like... The late period's like a dozen or so films in like a six-year span, right? And then the mid-period, which is only two years before Maria Braun, two years is what we're talking about. That's nothing in filmmaking time. That's like... a. third of a christopher That's nolan a, a for, yeah. tenth of a Kubrick movie right it's only <laughs> yes. a mid-period it's four years long you know the mid-period which contains another dozen films it's only like four years so it's just such a compressed amount of time like it's easy to forget maria braun's right at the fucking very end before he yeah. dies
1: like Even late the... period i usually think of like berlin alexander platz onwards like the yeah. lily marlene veronica voss Corel. Well, kind of era it's but...
0: after Ali fury it's the soul starts getting yeah. real budget because Ali fears yeah. The Soul gets him enough success that he becomes a quote-unquote real filmmaker at that point. This Maria Braun, uh, we talked about him slowing down. Fassbender thought it was his masterpiece. Fassbender thought this was the best one. According to Vim Vendors, Fassbender okay. thought that this was his masterpiece and best I, film I can made. buy that.
1: I, I, I can believe that. Um, I, I'm not sure I'd say it's my favorite, but you can feel like he has a, a certain... Amount of care with this one that you don't always see like oh i I have to get it right although again like i think there are some like glaring things that don't don't work in it (laughs) like i i felt a little bit better listening to this um, michael bauhaus audio commentary the other day because there's a scene in the film where she uh, i guess uh murders this gi to show that she loves her husband this american gi And I remember, like, watching it the first time, it didn't even, like, register that, like, she had actually murdered him. Yeah. And, like, you you kind of have to piece it together from, like, the following scene.
0: Yeah.
1: And then, like, Michael Bauhaus was like, yeah, we never got this scene to work right. Just, you just got to buy it. (laughs) So it made me feel a little bit better that, like, okay, it's not just me being uh, dense, you know.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, let's take us through the plot of this one, just so we're Mm. not, people aren't, aren't, Going through the dark. It's a very simple plot, Martin. Yeah, Maria I, I, Braun. I can do this. Maria Braun gets married and stays devoted to her husband. What else is there? To
1: say? <laughs> yeah. So she's uh, she gets married to a soldier right at the end of World War II. After the war, he's lost and presumed dead. She's kind of pining for her lost love, and um, you know she starts working her way up in the world. She has a relationship with a, an American soldier played by george bird then her husband comes back it turns out he's not dead and she murders this american who again like i i thought for like the first 20 minutes the first time i saw this it was going to be like an ali fears the soul type thing again <laughs> then yeah it, then it, it, it takes a turn where like the husband shows back and shows up and she murders this american and he takes the blame you know it, it's like uh you know her showing I, I love you and him kind of reciprocating by like taking the blame for this murder. So he's off in jail for a number of years and it's still like her her lost love, her pining for like the, the marriage that you know will one day be and uh, she starts working her way up in the world. She develops these relationships with men but they're very uh, transactional and uh, eventually her husband gets out of prison but then he's like well i gotta i gotta learn how to re-civilize myself after being in prison for so long and i think
0: and it's having kind of been that, a nazi during world war ii yeah that's something that these movies are about the west germany in the post-war era that's that's what these movies are about is about all of the people who were nazis who then went on to be adults and germans
1: and live so he goes off again and i or they say he goes to Canada right? he goes to
0: Canada, where the girls maybe. are where the girls are prettier than Maria Braun,
1: <laughs> maybe Manitoba. <laughs> um, and you know, she still keeps working her way up in the world. um it's it's a little bit of like a Mildred Pierce kind of story where you see her like gradually like working her way up. And, uh, you know, all the time she she's very like calculated. She's very kind of opportunistic, I think, but she has this idea that like well one day my husband's going to come back and you know we're going to be together and it's going to be like it should have been and then he finally shows up and he's like oh yeah i i don't actually love you and <laughs> uh, and then you know maybe she kills them both maybe it's an accident um it's, i guess originally in the script she was supposed to murder them both in a car crash but um Fassbender changed it to be a little bit more ambiguous with this gas explosion, which is, it's almost like the pathetic fallacy version of uh, suicide, you know, where <laughs> like, you know, when it rains, when your character is sad, well here, like, you know, when she feels like killing herself, the house blows up from gas.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know what I love about that? Cause it famously blows up and the credits begin the moment it blows up. Right. Yeah. Is that they had, they were contractually obligated to make the movie two hours long or shorter so it blows up and the credits hit to get to two hours. The movie's almost exactly two hours long. It's like to the minute. And that's the way that's all done that way is just like blow it up, credits done because they felt like everything else and it was necessary that this was the way to get it down.
1: I, I like that though. Hours. I feel like, like, I don't know. Sometimes I say it kind of- Oh, I love it. Like, I fucking like love Denny it. Moss or for wimps, like just any yeah. movie. Like, you know, I always think of uh, The Fly where it's like, Bam, fly's head explodes. She cries credits. Like, you know, yeah. don't, don't well, waste I was your just, time winding down.
0: I was just watching Scream 6. And there's like a everybody out in the ambulance is getting a blanket from the police scene, you know, and yeah. the, the main characters walk off. Like one of those scenes and it, and it's like 12 fucking minutes long. (laughs) And I was thinking like, why is any of this here? Like they just shot the guys, like have them in the movie theater burning down, you know, like that's, that's the final shot of the movie. It's not, oh, this person we thought was dead actually isn't dead and is like, I just got stabbed. I'm okay. Like this completely ludicrous shit. Like I agree with you completely. Like, and it went and it was like 12 minutes long. It's like, how is this still, how is this movie still happening? This movie's over two hours now. This movie's two minutes longer than Maria Braun Scream 6 because of this (laughs) denouement for it. Um, One thing we we need to mention just for historical detail about these movies to make sense of them and what Fassbender's trying to make sense of with these movies, right? Is the German economic miracle. In post-war Germany, Germany, West Germany, If you guys don't know if you're youngsters, Germany was split into two countries, East and West Germany, the communist Soviet controlled East Germany and the Western free market capitalist American controlled, I guess, to a lesser extent, European controlled West Germany and West Germany had an economic miracle. It recovered incredibly quickly and was back on its feet and up and running. Just to an improbable degree in this era, in the post-war era, and so he's concerned. There was a a uh, chancellor named Conrad Adenauer who's uh, featured. He's the guy in the opening shot of Lola staring at the record player, the photograph, the photograph that the the credits play over, and he's featured in a in a little photo montage at the end of this movie. He's the one who saw oversaw the economic miracle, Adenauer, and the movies are really about. Why did this economic miracle happen morally morally, and ethically and intellectually and emotionally? What does it mean that Germany was able to just instantly recover from Nazism? What does it mean for everybody just got to go back, that Germany just got to be made whole or halved, that Germany got to be made halved, one half got to be made whole again, right? So instantaneously... Uh, for this? What does that mean for these people? What does it mean for this? And the other thing I I wanted to mention, just because I felt like I left it open ended, like people would understand what it is. Uh, in 1962, there was a group of filmmakers who issued a statement at the Oberhausen Film Festival called the Oberhausen Manifesto. Uh, most of these signatories are not resemb- remembered, although Alexander Klug, who's one of Fassbender's buddies, uh, was on there. Klug was older than everybody else. He was sort of a professorial, older, established filmmaker. And the Oberhausen Manifesto in '62 was essentially like... We need a new arts and a new cinema specifically in Germany, and it needs to be government supported, and it needs to kill off the cinema of our parents, which is the cinema of the Nazis, and that they've been in control of their stories, and they've been in control of the tale, and it hasn't allowed Germany to reconcile its history, and to um, it's papered over the cracks it hasn't allowed us to deal with as a national psyche and us as the children of them with what happened. It's pretty funny to think about how Fassbender is a baby boomer. Isn't it funny that Fassbender's a boomer Yeah, born and no, born? I and. mean, uh,
1: <laughs> but, um, you know, if he, if he hypothetically, like if he had lived a different life, he'd still be around today. I mean, a lot of his uh, colleagues yeah. still are inventors and yeah. Uh, but, Hurtstag. um, Yep. Yeah,
0: but the uh, I guess he's technically not. I guess he's like a few months before the baby boom technically happens because he, he's, he's born a... He's born when the war is still happening, not post-war. Yeah, so that's he's... technically the dividing yep. line. But this Oberhelmsen Manifesto leads to a bunch of arts funding. This arts funding is what, uh, it's mainly through tax shelters, if I'm remembering correctly, is what allows Fassbender to make all of his movies and have a career and allows the new German cinema in general to happen. Uh, I'm not sure. I'd have to check... If like vendors and Herzog and Schlondorf all were somehow uh, using the tax credit system to get their movies made, but they all start around the same time and it's fostering this environment. So just because I mentioned that. So essentially what's behind these movies is the Oberhausen Manifesto generation coming to terms with the economic miracle generation, their parents' generation, and trying to pull that apart and figure out what it is. For some reason, they don't call... That generation, the greatest generation in Germany, for some reason. I guess I, I, Kevin, I'm not much of a historian. I'll have to look into why they don't call the Germans of World War II the greatest generation. I'm sure there's a reason for it.
1: Someone might, but they, they might not be <laughs> trusted, you know.
0: I don't know. They they handled the economic
1: miracle pretty well. Seems pretty great to me. Case well, closed. One of the interesting things in Merjamir Braun is the the ongoing kind of radio. Messages that sometimes like the audio it's laid over the dialogue, so you hear the radio, yes, foremost, and like what people are saying, like it becomes the background. And uh, like, well, that's actually Adenauer. The one that completely yeah. uh, drowns out the
0: dialogue is Adenauer giving a, a famous um speech that he gave at the beginning of the film. We hear Adenauer saying, "Germany doesn't want an army. West Germany doesn't want an yeah, army. What would we re-arm. ever want an arm then, for? Like, that's crazy." On, and then the later speech is like, "Of, of course, course we, we ever have a right arm." to arm ourselves, right? And that's, that's intended to mirror Maria Braun's transformation and sort of mirror the idea of does West Germany have a value system? Does Maria Braun have a value system? But that's ad an hour in both of those speeches in this movie. Sorry to
1: interrupt. Go on. No, no, that's exactly what I was going to say about it. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) That's okay. I mean, some films, like I've seen the similar device in other films and it like sucks like killing
0: it's, them softly is that oh, what you're thinking exactly
1: of? the one i was thinking of where it's like let me explain the financial crisis on the radio it's like get, get this
0: between the movie. between that movie and blonde that dude has clearly seen a bunch of fassbender movies and is a fucking moron those two things together <laughs> aren't true. he's seen a lot of fassbender and he's a fucking idiot those are that's that's what i take away from those movies uh um, oh, one thing I, it, I, it works
1: in maria braun where you get a sense of the kind of underlying hypocrisy or like you said the, the lack of any kind of values and like maria braun is a character who i i kind of go back and forth on like uh, the, the question i was saying on twitter you know was is she a is she a survivor or is she an opportunist you know is she doing yeah what she needs to to survive and everything's kind of an extension of that and she has this sort of romantic goal of uh, of this marriage that you know the, the love that can never be and then when it finally happens when you kind of get the the thing you've been fantasizing for the goal you've been working for it it's like not satisfying <laughs> i feel like it's an interesting uh, fastbender theme of when you get what you really want or what you fantasize for it'll like destroy you <laughs>
0: Well, I think, yes, I think that's true. But I think he's also trying to say this movie, these three movies are about the relationship of love to societal and emotional structures, right? And I think he does really believe in massive transcendental soul defining love. But I think he also has the observation that love in and of itself is a if not political framework, a framework for understanding reality, that there's a politics to love and being in love and that love in and of itself is a value system and that you can subscribe to a value system like love and being in love with your husband and doing the things to be a dutiful wife, right? That are a, a value system in and of themselves that have an inherent Uh, if not worth, then message and, and meaning the way a moral system does, right? And I think the irony of this movie, the irony that's thematically pointed out by this movie is that if we don't have love at the core of our actions, we become cynical, automated, empty, unhappy, miserable, right? But at the same time, not a but necessarily, and at the same time, if we act with love, no act is immoral. We can be promiscuous. We can be ruthless in business. We can be uh, duplicitous, you know, we can do all of those things, right? that's an interesting irony about like its moral vision, that if you're acting with yeah. love, that this is a value system in and of itself and that you can act morally without love. And you see this reflected again in Lola, that it's a completely yes. empty value system, that if, you, if you're if you doing anything without love, it has an inability to be moral, right? And that's, and I think, also, what makes them humanist. And I think it yeah. puts his politics, his personal politics and conflict with the inside of his movie is that, like you're saying, all politics is going to disappoint you. Most loves will disappoint you, too. I think that's his shattering realization is that, like, hoping to be in love is as hopeless for disarming West Germany, you know, West
1: German disarmament, you know? But also, like, in Lola, there's this idea that maybe, you know, loving somebody means accepting them for who they are and not... Not what you want them to be. Also, like there's this uh, friction between what Armin Mueller-Stahl's character thinks Lola is, and then you know what he finds out she is, and this idea that like you know can he still love her? You know, and is that maybe a truer love of loving her who for who she is? Like I don't, then love Lola... lo- then loving uh, Herman Braun,
0: who you've known yep. for two days before you got your marriage lasted two days after knowing him three weeks. What's the truer yep. love? Yeah, loving uh, somebody who is explicitly a prostitute who's not owned by you and accepting her for what they are or loving somebody who's an ideal that exists inside your head. And yeah, it's funny too- I mean, that too, also comes when... up
1: in Veronica Boss also with this, idea of falling in love with somebody who's more of an idea. You know, the, the real person is maybe- The image of the person. The, the image of the person and then the real person is is quite pathetic.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure, Uh, and just also to speak to your idea that when you get to the top, when you get there, when you finally get home and you consummate it and it's not at all what you wanted, fassbender plays the final scene there's there's a world cup game germany's victory over hungary in Bern. that's playing and i think him as a sports fan he's saying the same thing of when your team finally wins it all you go well that was completely meaningless and you've poured all of this emotion into sports fandom every sports fan will sort of recognize the amount of emotion you pour into this thing that's ultimately completely meaningless and not what you want it to be and even the victory does not really feel like anything or there's a tension to the victory. I'm not sure she is unhappy at the end there. I think that she's reached the ultimate. I think the ending's ambiguous yeah. to this movie. I think that you're supposed to say is this person happy or not happy in that way, you know. I think that that is this what she wants it to be. What is the meaning of this marriage? You know, now that it's gotten there to the end, we don't need to see it become good or bad. Let's, in this moment, pause it in this moment and freeze it in time in this moment where there's no confusion about what I'm interested in is the ideal consummated.
1: That whole idea of the the love that uh, could never be or the the lost love or what, you know, however she defines that relationship with her husband, that's like how she built her whole identity, her whole motivation, her whole uh, everything. And then it's like, you know, finally she has to, live with him, and it it's like that's the end of who she is you know like I, I think like she can't exist in the way that she defined herself anymore and like it's interesting you know she has a friend a character in the film who also had this husband who was lost and he comes back and they have to live together and like you know it's not this
0: and then then her perfect, ass get yeah. her ass gets fat and he's got to break up with her
1: yeah and it's it's like you know in a way for for Maria Braun <laughs> Like, what What would you rather have, you know, like the, the reality of living with this husband or this love that could be the sort of idealized love that, you know, like, oh, when he gets out of prison or oh, like when he comes back from Canada or oh, when he, you know, he's lost in the war, but I, I haven't lost hope that he might come back. Like, I think yeah, just around the bend that, you know, that love is more powerful for her than the, the kind of like reality of actually being in a marriage with somebody and living with them, and
0: well, we don't get to yeah. see it. We don't get right. to
1: know whether that's true
0: or not. We don't get to know. I, whether I'm
1: she's just saying that's that's my. I mean, like I feel like that's why the movie has to like explode and end. You know, <laughs> like that's yeah. my feeling for why, why you can't see that. He
0: wants to leave it an open-ended question, yeah. is why I think why we can't see it. Is he wants you to think about, you know, it's like uh, Germany, pale mother. In that way, the sort of like the guy who comes home is not who you thought they would be, yeah. you know, that kind of, of feeling uh, for it and that, oh, this person who came home, he's, he was a Nazi, he was a Nazi soldier. You know, the history is part of it. What is the future from there? He wants it to be an open ended question. One thing that I think is very clear, taking Lola, Veronica Voss and, and Maria Braun together is that sexual empowerment is a false face in these movies that well, the I power think, uh, the power of the whore is illusory it's explicitly a subjugational power that disguises itself as freedom being a prostitute requires total subjugation to the system to the power structures in these movies that she must buy into business in each of them business the film industry the producers the money men the businessmen she's subjugated below all of them but it disguises itself as freedom and as empowerment that now you're part of this system so you're free now to be part of them you own the whorehouse now right you were a movie star you own the textile business but in fact you've been consumed and subjugated by it whereas in I mean, Maria the real
1: empowerment Period. But let me just finish the thought. Okay.
0: Okay. In, In Maria Braun, love is a subjugation, an explicit subjugation to another person that allows her total freedom for her soul right that is the contrast that it's drawing is that it's two ironies next to each other this thing that pretends to be freedom that's subjugational and this thing that pretends to be subjugational that's actually very freeing right this idea of love is actually incredibly liberating to her and i think you're right that the actual structure of marriage He has to blow it up before they get there, because then that's going to be a third irony piled on top of it. Is that oh, that's now another societal subjugational structure that she's. Because then, like Maria
1: Braun turns into Effie Brest, you know.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Or she turns
1: into Lola, you know, which I think think he
0: doesn't want to do.
1: No, I mean the ending of Lola is also one I kind of go back and forth on how I feel about that. That final scene you know it like, used
0: to make me so upset it used to make me so upset I, watching it this time it i was i was not upset in the same way but gone
1: I, I mean i i watched it with my uh german friend debbie shout out to debbie and like i i think she loved the film up until the ending it's the kind of thing where like you go back and forth on like is it is it quietly devastating or is it is it actually hopeful in a way you know we, you kind of can look at it from from two different perspectives but uh uh I, well you want to just get into lola Th- well let's films... no i
0: want to go in okay. i want to go in the order that he proposes them okay. so i want to go maria braun veronica voss lola we need to mention it, they're labeled brd123 yeah although he made veronica voss after lola so the order of production is there as a trilogy part one part three part two is the order of release
1: it's a kind I, of i was gonna ask you about this because it's I... a george Lucasy thing <laughs> right well like i i wondered why he ordered the films the way he did because i i think like i didn't even watch them in order until recently preparing for this podcast but like it it makes a certain kind of structural sense when you start with maria brun and end with lola and veronica boss is like the the second act but well he wanted he wanted,
0: uh, he wanted to make nine of them supposedly, and he was working on one about Rosa Luxemburg when he died. Oh, so so, and I'm glad that one doesn't exist. Actually, I don't I don't actually want to see his Rosa Luxemburg film. Um, Maybe I do. I just I guess it's that Rosa Luxemburg is so venerated at this point by a kind of certain type of like... Feminist... uh... No, I was going to say leftist who fails at everything and fails to accomplish (laughs) anything. There's a certain kind of leftist for whom like the martyr who doesn't actually stop the Nazis is the most important political figure in the world, as opposed to like the people who actually stopped the Nazis like America and the French resistance, that they're much more into Rosa Luxemburg than they are into Patton. You know what I mean? There's a kind <laughs> of leftist who's like, it's better to be Rosa Luxemburg and let the Holocaust happen than it is to be Patton and actually kick the Nazis ass and grind them into a found, <laughs> fine paste. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, that's why it's sort of like, I didn't want to have Fassbender telling me that story. Although when I stop and think about it, it probably would have been more like third generation or mother coasters go to heaven, which have a more much more complicated relationship to to revolutionary activity than this is simply awesome and all works out for those guys. And they're all good people.
1: Well, it's funny, because you have the movie with uh, Barbara Sakawa as Rosa Luxemburg by um, Oh, God, yeah, uh, by Von Vontrada. But Von Trotta. Thank you. And like, that that's not like a Fassbender film at all. So, it, I I don't know if that has any connections to the version that uh, Fassbender was working on. But
0: no, I don't. That's uh, strange. Don't, not that I know of. Not that I know of. Although she's not a director that I would want doing a Fassbender script. I would say she's <laughs> not a. Uh, she's good in her own way. She's a very very interesting filmmaker. I don't mean to be dismissive, but what she's not is like acidically cynical and ironic while at the same time yearningly romantic. I think she's I think she's much more depressive. I think she's much more from that school of like things are a bummer school of, of <laughs> philosophy. Um, before we move on to Veronica Voss, just two things that I wanted to mention quickly about Maria Braun and anything you want to mention, of course, Martin. I feel like I have so much shit to vomit out about Fassbender oh, go, go and I've never it. talked about him before that it's like, would you just let me say everything <laughs> of an entire film class you know, I, I film don't mind semester's work because of shit. i
1: find like fastbender he's hard to have conversations with people with i feel like i assume there's people out there who are like total fastbender obsessives and who have seen yeah. all the movies and know everything about his biography because like i like i i really like the fastbender films i've seen but again like i haven't seen them all I'm not like like super I think I've seen every
0: single one. I don't think there's anything he's done think that I haven't
1: seen. I know there's like some that are basically just like uh, filmed plays, or you know, he's done yeah. some of the TV work I haven't seen. It's just well, not like really... his
0: version of Nora Helmer of Doll's House, Nora Helmer is a is a TV play. Yeah, but in stuff gen- like that in general, his that. TV stuff is not is not necessarily like that. Although I like Nora Helmer quite a bit, I think I think Margaret Cartinson does a great job with that, and I think the way that movie shot. He shoots a lot through windows and through sort of veiled things at the character, and that concept comes from Nora Helmer's. The first time I can think of him doing I, I that, and you it,
1: bringing this up when we talked to Berlin Alexanderplatz, um, and he
0: sort of takes yeah. that to this stuff. That's where that's why that's one's important. But I did just want to mention this movie Maria Braun is de- dedicated to Peter Zadek. Do you know who Peter Zadek is?
1: Uh, not really, no.
0: He was a he was a a German Jewish theater director, post war director, and he was one of Fassbender's mentors, right? I think this de- film is dedicated to him. That it's a little pointed. It's meant to be taken a little pointedly because at this time in '78, Fassbender. Had been repeatedly accused of anti-Semitism and was developing a reputation for being an anti-Semite, right? In March of 76, right before this film was made, right? So this film is is comes out in 78, but it's it's shot before then. Uh, he had put on a play called Garbage the City and Death, in which there's a um Jewish businessman character essentially is used as a political shield because criticizing Jews in Germany at that time was such a deep taboo so that the bad actors, the capitalist pigs, behind um, the bad business dealings have this Jewish businessman out in front of them because they know nobody will criticize anything he does, right? So this play gets accused of anti-Semitism for the reason of it's about a greedy Jewish businessman involved in a conspiracy to undermine Germany. Like you can see why it gets accused of that. But what Fassbender wanted to talk about it and what he said, the reason he made it is how this kind of like false philo is actually anti-Semitism in disguise, that it's the German history not wanting to come to terms with itself is, no, 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 Germany's a place where we love Jews and we'd never criticize a Jew. It's keeping Jews in a separate class from German society. It's still othering them in a lot of ways. And on top of it, it's creating opportunities for that philo to be exploited by bad actors, right? That, that there's a kind of, uh, positional social value to being othered in this case, and that's going to be exploited by people, right? And so the play got withdrawn. It got pulled. It got got yanked uh, at that point. And it was a really big controversy. And even now, you will still hear this sort of thoughtlessly repeated idea that Fassbender was an anti-Semite. It still comes up occasionally. And it's not like it should be made clear, it's not like Patricia Highsmith, where if you read her diaries, she's a fucking anti-Semite, like she hates Jewish people, right? It's not like that at all. He just touched a live wire topic and specifically wanted to talk about a taboo and found that it was a taboo too far. So I think he lists Zadek dedicates it to him right after this controversy, probably still in the thick of it, stopley still dogging him because he's a Jewish theater director with whom he has a close relationship, it's a little bit of like, I have tons of black friends kind of move on his part, I think a little bit. And Zaydek was um, most famous for early in his career, for his productions of uh, John Genet. And Genet obviously was a massive influence on Fassbender as well. He's probably the influence on Fassbender even more than Cirque. Cirque gets brought up a lot, but like Genet is like the influence. His final film is Corel, of course, is a a Genet adaptation. In his writings, he talks a lot more explicitly about Genet uh, than he does about Cirque. He has like one or two pieces on Cirque, but like he's really a guy who's like, It reminds me of like when you go, because he went to a film festival and saw like all of the Cirque movies, like in a short amount of time. It's fun to think
1: of that, like you can have a, that there was a period in time when you would have uh, a retrospective of film series and it would like change the course of a filmmaker's (laughs) career, you know, that's sort of exciting.
0: Yeah, but it's also that like, this happens to all of us where you watch like, a bunch. Of, it just happened to me with Kazuo Hara, where I watched a bunch of his documentaries and for like a month I was like, I am a really into Kazuo Ohara. Like, he's really important. And like a year from now, I'll still like his movies but he won't He won't be Boonwell or Fassbender, like somebody that I've lived with, or even Errol Morris, somebody that I've lived my whole life with. And I think Janae is the the Errol Morris, Boonwell, Fassbender in that scenario, and Cirque is the Kazuo Hara, where it's just like he has this moment of like, oh, that! you know? Yeah. And so I think that that's, I think that's an interesting credit. It might be an uncharitable and insulting interpretation of that, of that dedication. But I think these movies are dedicated to his, uh, to his mentors. Lola's dedicated to Klug, uh, right. to Alexander Klug, um, who's, I don't even know if he's known in the U.S. He's a huge figure in the new German cinema. His most famous movie is Abscheid von Jestern, which sometimes gets translated as goodbye girl or the yesterday girl it means goodbye to yesterday uh, and it's a very French new wavy take on a woman in post-world War II Germany and um and he also did artist under the big top perplexed. His his clown circus movie, uh, that I just love the title of. He's like a marginal figure in the sense of like the movies aren't that great, but he's really, really important to the movement. And I he, think that's
1: important to the the new German cinema. Like you said, he's a little bit older and he's kind of this um he's a professorial type. He's
0: professorial like a professorial
1: mentor, kind of a figure. I think he's still alive, actually. He's, yeah.
0: He's he's, uh, he's like still around here. Yeah. He's like the guy with glasses and you know, leather patches on his tweed jacket to like Fassbender's greasy wild boar and Herzog and the madness <laughs> right. of the jungle. You know, that's like his his role in all of this is like, go get them, yeah. kids, you know, that kind of
1: thing. So I um, think it, like there's something, you know, if you're if you're making a film that you feel like, oh, this is the one for me, like, I'm really going to put my effort to it. Like, I can all understand just want to acknowledge somebody who had a Influence on you, or for sure make you, like you know? I I can see. I mean, I didn't know any of that, but just hearing that, like, I, I can definitely see a cynical reason for the <laughs> thank you credit. But
0: I don't think it's uh, necessarily cynical, but I do feel like it's pointing out, like, I'm being accused of some bullshit here. Let's remember who I am. Yeah, you know what I mean, what I mean and where I come still,
1: from. To this day, like I've seen. You know, I was listening to some other podcasts, and like in a year of thirteen moons, kind of came up as being transphobic, which I don't really think that's well what's going on in that movie. But like, yeah, yeah, I I, I kind of get why why people today come across that one and are like, oh, shit.
0: Well, he says this actually when he was asked about Garbage, the City and Death being anti-Semitic. And he said, of course, you can read this film in an anti-Semitic way because I'm touching on such a taboo subject. But you can also read Fox and his, fir- Fox and his friends in a homophobic way. I think he probably says anti-homosexual. I doubt the word homophobic existed then. in an anti-homosexual way and Mother Custer's in an anti-communist way if you want to read them stupidly. And I would say the same thing about in a year of 13 moons, yeah. you can read it as transphobic if you want to be a fucking moron. But so many people now are just trained in that academic, you know, grad school paper kind of way of reading movies that are like, it doesn't expressly say something is good or bad. Therefore, it's, you know, just this, just if there's been nothing worse for the arts than the academicification of the arts. There's just been nothing (laughs) worse for it. It's created a bunch of people who are too dumb to be in the business of interpreting films, being given the tools to try and build critical houses and building these asinine, dilapidated structures. Um. Fassbender is also in Maria Braun. He's an actor. And uh, I feel like John and I must have done a tweet of it at some point. But he looks so much like Porco Rosso as the Black Marketeer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I had the same thought with the the scarf and everything.
0: He looks so much like Porco Rosso. And uh, just speaking to the VHS era where it was just impossible to find these movies, I saw Maria Braun in high school, right? And so this was like the only Fassbender movie I had and I loved it. And it was like this is like one of my favorite directors and just trying to like, it's, you're looking at it like a like an ancient tablet you found where you're trying to find every bit of meaning in it. And Fassbinder's selling the works of romantic poet, Heinrich von Kleist, right? And you think, oh, why would she need the books? And then she talks about the books burning too fast so they won't be useful for firewood. And you realize that's the joke that he's not saying people need romantic poetry in their life. Even at this time, they need firewood. But he only says In it, I have a complete set of Kleist, right? He doesn't say Heinrich von Kleist. And I remember in high school trying to figure out who the fuck Kleist was. And there was just no way. There's just no way. I'd ask people who might know, hey, do you know a writer named Kleist? And everybody would be like, I don't know. You know, like I finally figured out who he was uh, when I saw Romer's The Marquise of O, which is based on on a Kleist uh, novel and was like, oh, that must be the Kleist that Fastbender's talking. It was like, oh my God, great. But that was like the only way to find this shit out. And people don't remember before oh my god. The, before the Wikipedia era, it just be I like mean, Kleist. I'm, I'm still I wonder who that remember,
1: is. I remember when I had to bring a a notebook and a pen to the video store. And I would like, you know, either looking at the credits of movies you write down the names of people you're interested in and yeah. like try to cross check that with the backs of videotape other... covers. I remember this was like uh, like an insane method to try to find other films by filmmakers you were but interested in. But you had to and... do it.
0: There was no I other know. way to do it. It's like, what did Fassbender direct? I don't fucking know. You know, yeah. like what are his name? What's a list of them? Well, I got Marriage of Bria Braun and Efi Breest, which is the bad one. And like, that's that was like my, my list of movies I was looking for from him. Uh, then when I finally saw Leafy Priest, I was like, "I love this movie." He was so unfair to this, but um, but Kleist was uh, was a so romantic, a romantic poet. He committed suicide with a friend of his who was dying of cancer, a woman with whom he had a platonic relationship. Can you imagine a more a more romantic poet death than a suicide pact with a a beautiful young woman that you haven't even so much as kissed? Can you imagine a more romantic poet death than that? It's impossible. It's impossible.
1: (laughs) Throw it into the fire.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing I noticed too, this time watching Maria Braun, I don't know how I never noticed it before. Capri Fisher is playing during her mom's birthday party. The Bella, Bella, Bella Maria that, you know, is like Lola's signature, Sean, that's Marie Louise's signature song, is playing at her mom's birthday party. And I was like, I wonder, again, it's hard to put together, like, what does this song mean to post-war Germany? It was just like a hit. Like, I know that, but like, what what does it mean to Fassbender that he's like, we got to have it in both? It's on in, is it in Lily Marlene, maybe? That would make sense because she does a lot of songs. No, she does so many songs. I bet maybe I,
1: I I didn't think to look this up, but maybe there, there's a chance it might even be in there. So anyway,
0: but um, and then the final thing about Maria Braun is it ends with a photo montage, a very puzzling photo montage. If you don't know what yeah, you're looking th- at. This- it was the chancellors of post-war Germany leading up to the current one. They're like a negative yep. images. So it starts with Konrad Adenauer. But it's funny because it's only three or four guys, but he leaves one out, the socialist chancellor that he actually liked. So he's like, no, 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 that guy's not part of the story of the, the problems of Germany. It's very, it's very political thing to do to be like, look at the legacy of this, except for the guy I like he has nothing to do with the legacy of this Sometimes century. I feel like- Leave
1: him out. Like with politics, sometimes you even got to throw the politicians you like out the window. You know what I mean? You are there should be the first <laughs> ones to go. Exactly. They should be the first ones to go. If you feel yourself <laughs> liking
0: a politician, defenestrate that guy first, <laughs> because he's just he's just going to get you. He's just going to be <laughs> issuing fucking Netflix lists and becoming an a Instagram influencer after he's president.
1: Don't believe any of these guys. It's funny, like, I I think when people talk about the Fassbender as a political filmmaker, they're thinking about stuff like that. And, like, I I don't know, like, for me, the the politics of Fassbender, it's much more in how he characterizes people, how he's exploring how people exist in a period of time or a milieu and, like, stuff like that. Like, to me, it's the actual, like, oh, this chancellor at this period who contributed to the germany of t- like that all that stuff kind of just d- d- goes over my head it, it, like it doesn't even register with me when i'm watching his films well i, I don't think, even really yeah. think of him as like a, a political filmmaker in the way that like godard is where you know he's doing a video essay movie where he's like throwing images at you and it's like yeah. oh like that, that's clearly supposed to mean something yeah. about this this politician <laughs> being juxtaposed with the uh, charlie chaplin or whatever
0: you know. No, he doesn't. He, he's not Glaberosha, He doesn't, He's not making Yo Soy Cuba, you know, like he's not that. That's not what these movies are. They're not propagandistic. I think you said it right, that he's incredibly honest. And if you're being honest about politics, I think that you say that a lot of it is empty noise and the signal to noise ratio is very, very bad. And a lot of it's self-serving and a lot of it's counterproductive and a lot of it's failure and a lot of it's well, silliness. Also, like, I think third about, third generation uh, is about like, yeah. this shit is all silly is what third generation. <laughs> it's life or death silliness is what politics are, which is a really heartbreaking thing. Cause it's third generation saying politics is the most important thing in the world. It's also so goofball shit for children. You know, like that's, that's what that movie is about. And
1: so much of the, the politicking, like, especially from a less leftist perspective, it's about like, how do we empower, empower the uh, neglected groups and this and that. And like empowerment, I think like, you know, Fastbender's is critical of the idea of empowerment and power. And it's like what what do you need power for anyway? <laughs> you know,
0: if you get empowered, bit... no, Maria yeah. Braun and Lola both say, if you get empowered, that becomes becoming part of the power structure, which was subjugational. Yes. Like that's all it means is to become, you're not changing the power structure. You're not defeating it. You get to become a middle manager who signs off on all of their building plans, right? That's, that's yeah. what you get to do if you successfully get empowered. Yeah, so but I agree with you. The, the
1: one we keep, dancing around
0: (laughs) (laughs) the yearning of veronica voss it frustrates me that its full title isn't translated because it's very much in the tradition of the bitter tears of petra von Kant, the marriage of maria braun the yearning of veronica voss and i have no idea why here in 2023 we all know what the title is it's the title card on the movie we can all see it's not called veronica voss it's called the yearning of veronica voss so i have no idea why it's like it's like the bicycle thief
1: yeah yeah Oh, yeah. Bicycle Thief. It was the Bicycle (laughs) Thieves. And Veronica Voss is about an actress who was acting during the Nazi era in Germany. And now in the post-war period, she's struggling to get roles. And it's about this journalist kind of investigating her life. and
0: This journalist who meets her in the rain and sort of becomes entwined with her. He becomes emotionally entwined. He's not like, hey, I got an idea for a story. They, they meet each other in the rain and she sort of wiggles her way into his life, which causes him to start investigating her. Sorry to interrupt.
1: Yeah. Uh, Hilmar Fate uh, is the actor, right, who plays the journalist. He finds out that she's kind of caught up in this uh, lurid situation where she's being uh, given drugs as a means for this doctor to kind of exploit her. Uh, and it's... I guess closely based on um, Sybil Schmidt, who was uh, S- uh, Sybil Schmitz. She was in. She was in, I think, like a couple of Dreyer movies. Maybe she was in. She's in Vampire. She she is in Vampire. That's the one I also, know her from. She, she's also in uh, Diary of a Lost Girl for Pabst. Who, you know, you can maybe find some connections with to Fassbender. But like, she was a she was a movie star who worked. During the Nazi period, uh, she was in like the version of Titanic that was produced by Goebbels, and then after the war, she struggled to get work, and she got caught up in this real situation, which was like never really legally uh, resolved, where it looked like maybe she killed herself from an overdose, but maybe she was being fed drugs by this. A doctor to basically steal all her money, and the same doctor did the same thing with a couple of other actresses. So it was like, kind of a scandal, kind of this thing that was in the consciousness. Um, but I don't. I mean, it's an interesting figure. Like I, and she was
0: like the classic lady who had a ton of affairs and a tempestuous yeah. personal life, and had a
1: screenwriter husband played I mean, by Armie Miller Shaw in this movie who yeah. got cheated on there were a couple of actresses who were like this. Like the one I always think of is uh, Lida Beharova, who um, I talked a little bit about in the, the article I wrote for the site a while back on Etintat. Yeah. And she was, she was a very famous Czech movie star. And then she became Goebbels mistress. Uh, I, I think to the point where like Hitler basically had to force them to break up because it looked bad. Goebbels, cheating on his wife with the Slavic woman, okay. but um it's strange how like after the war, like I always think of them as like these like damned actors, damned directors who worked during the Nazi period and then like hung around after because like you know, Lida Barova, like she couldn't get work in Czech Republic after or a Czechoslovakia still uh, because you know of her associations with these Nazi films and and she still managed to find work. Like she worked in Italy, she worked in Spain. I think she was in maybe a couple of Fellini movies. Mm-hmm. Like they still managed to scrounge up work. And there uh, over. she never like ended up in this kind of drug scandal situation like uh, Veronica Voss character did. She, she lived into like the 2000s maybe. <laughs> like She stuck around for a long, long time. But you know, the Lenny Riefenstahl types, i feel like veronica voss it's it's interested in that kind of a figure where it's like what do you do with these tainted well, people after but um
0: well it's my understanding that what happened to lenny riefenstahl and i might be confusing her with someone wasn't she killed in a movie theater by brad pitt that he burned down it might be confusing. <laughs> wasn't that the revenge that we we got her no it's Emil jannings i know lenny riefenstahl wasn't actually in that movie just so, as, just so long as, just so long as we killed Emile Jannings. Just so long as that happened. Did you see that Jesse Owens biopic?
1: No. Oh my God! I can only imagine. I was like shocked at how how glowing the film was for Lenny Riefenstahl. Uh Yeah, no, it's weird. I, I, it was like this is weird that like you're kind of. They're like, no, no, she's okay. She was just, a, she was just an artist. She's, she's just a. She, documentary. like, no, she, she played a role in this, like machine of evil like you know it's it's a weird thing to kind of try to there's a um, extricated from that like i
0: but she got out she i remember even in the 90s it was seen as like well she wasn't she's really not one of the the nazis she was really just like she got out and was part of Polite society again. I think those are the exact people the BRD movies are trying to be about. Yeah, is it is it Sontag? Susan Sontag. I that think this was the one who has an essay, and it's written in like the seventies, and it's very it's very funny because it's about women filmmakers and how. And the essay is essentially like, I can't believe we all have to sit here and pretend like Agnes Varda, Chantal Ackerman are actually good filmmakers. And, And it kind of sucks that Lenny Reifenstahl is the only good woman filmmaker who ever existed. It's a very funny essay to read back then where it's just like, but you see that now where it is. That's one of the things that I find so strange about like Agnes Varda's presence on social media, where there's a lot of her being an adorable Instagram uh, yeah, grandma. That's exactly But very why, little yeah. talk of the films. There's people, almost no I think most of
1: them happened. haven't seen the films. She's just like cute cinema grandma with the uh, cute hairdo. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, I, I guess people have seen David Lynch movies, but it's just like, oh, that's quirky Twitter grandpa. And yeah. Werner Herzog is the the guy with the hair who goes... To the Amazon, and like yeah. you know, they, I I don't know how many people have actually seen the guy who's on American Dad. You know, shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean Herzog's kind of embraced that, but you know, I, I think like there is something about like people who are just more interested in the persona of these filmmakers than their actual films. In a well, lot that's of cases. what I
0: I think Fassbender falls into that category. I think it's also with the way social media works; it's a lot easier to pretend you've seen something and to maybe subconsciously feel like you know more about a filmmaker than you do just by seeing the images and the titles and He's interviews. The filmmaker
1: with the glasses and the leather jacket. He's Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Here's this is this is the shot. His films are super bright and colorful, like Lola, or they're stark black and white. You know, this kind of not necessarily false impressions, but sort of we've talked about this where there's certain very gifable movies like Possession yes. and V that I think are like interesting films, but not among the greats, but like the strength of their gifts has elevated them to a different level, sort of their social media reputation. And I don't get the impression that people have necessarily seen the stuff with Fassbender. Fassbender and Varda are the two that I see people going bananas for online that I think are just the right profile to be sort of pushed and promoted. Like they, they seem like the right kind of filmmakers to be into. They're the right film signifiers yeah. well, again, I, but I think you don't this hear like, like
1: why why i've had trouble finding conversations about fassbender like i mean we talked about this on berlin Alexanderplatz, but for a long time before i met uh you and John, it would be like oh you've seen berlin Alexanderplatz? what do you think oh it's really long yeah so that would be like the one <laughs> kind of like observation and you, that's and you go, know like, i don't wh- think what do you... i
0: don't think you've seen it is then what you think <laughs> yes. in your head yeah <laughs> Uh, that's No, I have the I have the same thing where you sort of go, ha- have you seen this? Or have you seen a bunch of like tweets and Instagram posts about this? And not to be too gatekeeper-y because it does become a little like that I mean, funny thing that happens. City. Well, no, yeah. I was going to say when you see, because I'm like a metal person and I still make the mistake of when I see young people in metal shirts to think they like Megadeth and or you know, or suicidal tendencies, not that those shirts have become a style in and of themselves. But at the same time, there's lots of women who are into metal and young people who are into metal. And if you give them the like, do you actually like this band? Then you're an asshole gatekeeper. I still haven't learned how to navigate. I just have to ignore the t-shirts now. And I feel a similar thing with Fastbender of like, you say you're into this, are you one of the people who actually is or did you just buy like a plain white tee with this director's name on it? You know, like that style of what am I actually what am I actually encountering here? Because I don't want to be a gatekeeper. I want to revel in something I like with somebody else who revels in it, you know, but I also don't want to like put anybody on the spot who genuinely doesn't know shit. And I also don't want to talk to somebody who doesn't know shit too. like all of that is is difficult to navigate. I mean, if
1: somebody gets into Fassbender because they saw a a GIF of Lola and thought, hey, those colors look cool, I'm going to watch the movie. Like, I'm totally fine with that, but... Oh, it's awesome. It's the
0: best thing. I think these filmmakers are much more known now. I think overall, like in high school, somebody who'd seen Fassbender, I wouldn't even... Like, Berlin Alexanderplatz was like a myth, was like a legend you heard of. You know, there was a joke on the critic about it. And I was like, "Oh my God!" You know, like that kind of thing. And 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 uh, the joke
1: was that it was really long. Exactly, it was like the one thing that (laughs) everyone had any. Oh, did you know there's like a movie that's this many hours long? And And then
0: and then you find out it's not long. It was a TV show. Yeah, that's like being. Have you seen Have you you seen Breaking Bad? No, it's sixty hours long. It's like no, it's not. (laughs) It was a TV show. It was a fucking TV show. It's not an exceptionally (laughs) long movie.
1: Um out out one that might be a different story but
0: yes out one out one i will say nakedly is the number one movie people pretend to have seen and liked that they have not seen and if they have seen it they have not liked because that movie is abysmal that movie is is an affront to human dignity they should bring that movie in front of the hague that's how bad that movie is and people are like, I love Outlaw. And it's like, no, sir, you do not. And I know you like it, Martin. I know you're into Outlaw. You're the only one I believe.
1: I, I like Jacques revet. I'm. I i can't help it. I <laughs>
0: uh, I know. I know. I know. There's still time. There's still time to save you. <laughs> still time to save you. I'm not going to defend you in front of the Hague. I'm going to get you a passport. We're going to get you out of here, out of revet land and pretend okay, like this right. never happened then you can come back and enjoy the post land economic miracle and it'll all be fine. We'll never talk about that.
1: Well, uh, the real question is, should Veronica Voss be dragged out in front of The Hague? <laughs> <laughs> I had to get back Go on, tell me your thoughts on Veronica Voss. What, what do you do with a person like that who's, who's out of step with a history that's trying to forget what came before it? Do you like this movie? no I like parts of this movie there, there are like ideas and something about this does not quite work and it's a topic that I think is like really interesting and it's something that I think about and it's kind of frustrating that the movie doesn't um doesn't quite work <laughs> but you yeah. know, like I I think like on paper you know if you just read the synopsis I'm like oh clearly this is going to be my favorite Fassbender movie <laughs> but yeah um, and if
0: you see a still and it's that gorgeous ultra stylized oh, that, black that, and white yeah. where he has the star filters on so it's I really know like those gleaming. gorgeous dissolves yeah. like um yeah
1: I think uh Julian Lorenz was talking about like just finding this old bin of uh of dissolves from that era like 1930s 40s and you know that's kind of the perfect way to bring you back into that period and like it does look gorgeous i mean it's it's his it's one of his most
0: thin movies yeah it's down yeah. there it's down there after you get out of sort of the anti-theater era and he starts making real movies it's down towards the bottom of those i put it down there with beware of a holy whore as my two then, least favorites still
1: like it's funny like of the holy Horror. uh that, that's another one where it's like I, I don't know if I like this, but there are moments that stick with me and that I keep kind of thinking about. Like, there are scenes in Veronica Voss that I come back to. Like, uh, the scene where she's at that kind of like jewelry kiosk. Yeah. And you get these two women who, who recognize her as she shot up there before uh, during the Nazi era. And the way they kind of like, corner her and the way they're like oh yeah like times are hard but they were better right and they're like <laughs> elbowing her, like, yeah you know, and there's this idea that like the the people that would accept her are like the exact sort of people you should not associate with yeah and stuff like that i find really fascinating um i like it's interesting to me the ways that people had to compromise to Put the past behind them to put the Nazis in behind them, and like sometimes, you know, people who ha- should have borne some kind of guilt had to be let off the hook in a way because of that process. Like, um, you know, what scene I really like in uh, Lars von Trier's Europa, which is kind of his his uh, in a way like an homage to Spender movies uh, about the post-war period. But like the scene where Lars von Trier plays the Jewish person and like they're they're talking with this Nazi uh about like oh you know we see that you protected this Jewish person and the Jewish guy comes out and yes he was my friend he sheltered me he protected me okay you know you're not gonna have any kind of repercussions because you're clearly a good person we're gonna let you off the hook and then the character Mr. Kessler uh walks around the building and he observes the like realized that like oh of course this Jewish person didn't knowing he was just dragged out to get the guy off the hook and but you know I, I think like there were variations of that kind of thing that that really happened where in a way like it, it's just how you have to move on from the past it it's hard to put no words sorry no yeah.
0: it's i I've, I agree with you completely that's one of the open questions for me when I watch these films is fastbender seems to be asking the question what went wrong Right. But to me, it's like whatever happened in Germany and Japan post-war where they became free democratic nations with a strong uh, history of democratic ideals, not so much in Japan, like whatever happened to Germany is exactly what should have happened. This is the best case scenario For a post-Nazi country, you know, you should be looking to recreate this process, not diagnose its failures to me. And I think that's where his own personal politics gets in the way of capitalist society is inherently bad. He has that thought in his head. So... Diagnosing a wildly capitalist democratic society to him that he he sort of starts from a bad premise to me and but I think the movies are smarter than that because he's more honest than that. But that's what I mean when I say he gets a little lost in a maze of his own design, the maze that he's designed is capitalism is bad. And then he tries to follow that path and ends up saying, but so much is good in Germany now, so much is, is has worked out correctly. Is that the right thing? And he sort of gets lost yep. in that. But I think it's a good thing. I think it's ultimately a good thing. I think he's I think he's smarter than his politics. And, and yep. in the way you're talking, that Godard is much, much dumber than his politics. You know, <laughs> right. His
1: movies are much, much dumber than him. You know, I I can understand the necessity of saying, like, you know, how do we move on from this horrible thing instead of dwelling on it and dissecting it and looking for retribution and all of that? Just just forget it and move on. You know, I mean, like, that's true for a lot of things in life where they say, like, ah, just forget it, move on. Like, it's not worth the trouble. Yeah. (laughs) But then, you know, you get into this problem of, like, what do you do with these people, these parts of the history that maybe should have gone away but didn't you know they're still lingering and I think like talking about Veronica Voss I think especially this idea with film it's like the the evidence is still there you know you can't erase it it's like a memory that you can go and watch and you get the sense that like Veronica Voss as a character she's stuck in her own past I know like some people kind of compare the film to Sunset Boulevard where she's kind of trapped in her own past in a way but like for me it's almost like more toxic than that it's like this you know it's almost like the morphine how that's kind of linked to her connection to the past and when she's kind of going through those flashbacks while she's drugged out at the end you know it's i i kind of wish that sequence was a little bit more like hallucinatory like uh the end of berlin alexander platz going yes. through her old memories and you know I i kind of wanted something a little bit more like that but you get this idea that like the past it's almost like this drug she can't quit you know <laughs> Oh, but uh, you know it, it's also this issue of like what what do you do with something like that what, what what happens to them I, I kind of wish the film delved a little bit more into the films that Veronica Voss was making in this era you know like in the in the Nazi era just to kind of contrast that with post-war era um you know like just Thinking about like some of those films that were produced during the Nazi era, like a lot of them were also very like aesthetically impressive, you know, they had these like big color films that were made right towards the end of the Nazi era. These like aqua film color, like uh, Kohlberg is the one I always think of, but there's another one. I forget the title, but it, it was like this big musical with the staircase and it was all in this like reddish pinkish kind of color. And it, it's like, it doesn't feel that far removed from sort of aesthetic stuff that is doing and i know he kind of puts veronica voss in that like gorgeous black and white but um i don't know i'm just like daydreaming what what it would have been like if you know you have veronica voss in black and white during uh well the post-war 1950s dreamy period and then like you go to these flashbacks and it would have been like the bright colorful uh era of her her heyday making these films during the nazi era and also, I know you kind of touched on it before how the doctor is not really fleshed out as much. Like it kind of feels like Fassbender wants to do something a little bit like Petrov um Petro von Kant with the Doctor, but it's just not as well the nurse developed, is, you know,
0: is is irredeemably bad. She's yeah. given nothing to do but be creepy and manipulative. She's like a horror movie villain. She'd be she'd be right at home in like a cure for wellness or or Hatselosevich's <laughs> right. evolution. You know, I I just she's she's a nothing character. She's the weakness to the film with me. And in this movie, it feels why I say I'm not necessarily wouldn't be excited for his new era. This movie feels like one of his more shallow movies, but it feels like he thinks he's expressing so much with the style that he can drop some of the other complexities of his other work and i don't necessarily agree he sometimes you hear him talk and he talks about how exciting the final episode of berlin alexander platz was to him and this movie where he feels like he's found a new way to do things and those stuff are not as good as his other stuff you know i think it works better as a sequence in this movie but i i don't think that the final sequence of berlin alexander platz is the best work he ever produced or the most expressive i just don't
1: but no, yeah, but that, that's also like pitched much higher than than the ending of veronica boss where it's more like a like oh uh, yeah uh, I'm, yeah i'm, I'm doing with the motion with my head which people can't <laughs> see but you know she's in the bed and it, it's and it's she's like dreaming a, of a party with her pals. Berlin Alexander Plitz gets into this like fever dream kind of like yeah. Veronica falls. It's like, it's like the end of James Cameron's Titanic when she goes to the Titanic and everyone's <laughs> waiting for her a little bit, you know? Um,
0: what, I, what I find strange about this movie is you talked about addiction to the past and that's, that's an interesting way of phrasing it. This is his most direct film about addiction to drugs. And it has almost nothing to say about addiction to drugs because it's about an addict who's manipulated into their addiction by a cruel doctor, right? Yeah. So it's very strange to me. And it's like, well, it makes sense that he would die of a drug overdose like a year and a
1: half later. What's funny is like this. If he doesn't, he
0: doesn't seem to have any relationship to addiction, except like it's it's incredible to me that somebody in the throes of massive addiction, who's about to die from it, made a movie about addiction that is so unreflective about what addiction is.
1: It's you just incredible. Th- this uh, slow death scene from Veronica Voss, uh, where she's she's in bed and she's kind of reliving her past movies, and um, and this should be like the most kind of personal, the most um like oh, can you believe that the foresight of, of Fassbender making this scene before he died? And it, like it doesn't read that way at all because it, it's not.
0: It's cliches. It reads yeah. like
1: he doesn't
0: see it coming at all. Right. It reads this is just his most thin movie in that that way. This is a very shallow movie. I would say it always surprises me when people count it among their favorite Fassbenders. Cribs is always shocked that I don't particularly like this movie. And it's not that I dislike it. I'm just indifferent to it. It's fine. It does look great. It's it's interesting enough, but it's just not among his best. There's just stuff too that like, I feel like is more complex in the other BRD films. You have the black soldier character. You have Gunther Kaufman, who's in all three movies as, as yeah. a black American soldier. And in this one, he's like a black soldier who's facilitating the morphine ring. And it's and it's clearly meant to be America as the supplier of West Germany's dangerous addiction to capitalism. Right. But that's such like a a thin and silly idea. And Kaufman's given the least to do in this movie of all of them. And he's not given a he's given like a scene in the other movies, you know, and this is the one where even like he's given even less than that it just feels like so super thin i'm always i'm always surprised when people say this is one of their favorites it it genuinely
1: me. again i think it's the kind of thing where it sounds on paper deeper than it is you know it sounds like these big meaty themes about wrestling with film and how do you and the image we project of ourselves, its relationship yeah.
0: to reality, and the image of Germans past, how it relates to reality. And yeah, it sounds meaty, but it's just not. You know what it really reminded me of this time was um Confidentially Yours. Have you ever seen that? The true film?
1: Yes. Yeah, I've seen they're, Confidentially Yours.
0: They're both these, like one of the very last films by a director who died young. They're in black and white. And they both faint at like being a genre type story. You know, this is like the detective cracking the, you know, the, the case of the movie star. But both of them have none of the actual like feel and texture of like a detective investigative reporter type noir. They both right. feel like puzzling to me. They both feel like a director not at the top of their game Sort of just doing something to do it is how I would describe them. You know what I mean? They both feel like making a movie just to make a movie. And I really, really like Confidentially Yours. It's grown on me quite a bit. It's it's my going to sleep movie. I put it on when I'm falling asleep each night for uh, now. And uh, and so it's like grown on me a lot. But they both feel like puzzlingly indifferent kind of films. You know, like I'm just not sure what. What the director thinks this thing is. The song she sings, though the uh "Take One Soft and Tender Kiss." You know sure. what I always associate that with?
1: What What do you associate it's, it with?
0: It's the song Peter Gallagher sings in the Hudsucker Proxy at the big Hudsucker Industries party. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> I- <laughs> one girl, one boy, some grief. Some joy. You don't remember Peter Gallagher and his strange cameo in The Hudsucker Proxy? It's been a long time since I've seen The <laughs> Hudsucker Proxy. I'm you haven't sorry. seen you haven't seen The Hudsucker Proxy over sixty times, like me. No,
1: I I, I, <laughs> I haven't seen it over sixty times.
0: Um, yeah, that was a movie in high. That was like the first real movie I ever saw. You know what I mean? When you go to the theater and you're like, "Oh, that's a real movie." When I was like fourteen. And it was just like, oh my God, that was, that was
1: this experience of like, when I was a kid, you know, anything that seemed like for adults, uh, that, that was like a real movie, like, oh, it's not for kids. And I'm going to take this seriously and I'm going to take all the ideas seriously. And then like, you know, I'll go back and look at some of these films today and realize that they were like trashed by critics, (laughs) that they were like, not not films to be uh, taken seriously necessarily, you know, and, uh. But when you're a kid and you're watching something that's like for adults, you take everything at, at face value, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know with Veronica Voss. I don't know. It's, it's yeah. and placing it next to the other two and talking about them, I sort of feel like I'm getting more out of it during this conversation than sure. I ever
1: have in the past. This should not be the end of the trilogy. This one has to go in between. Yeah. Somehow i am got to sandwich it in. Yeah. I'm not sure what, what... I, I don't know if he had planned how much of the the trilogy he had planned ahead of time or well like you said he was thinking of nine movies but the the order you know i don't know why like did he have the order ahead of time or did he decide the order after the fact i don't actually know i have no idea i have I, no I idea to figure this out and like uh, part of me was like well are, like is the order one two three based on the um the chronology like are they set well they at, both jump uh, around periods, but, they, both, but they, they both jump, jump around, so around so in time I don't. Yeah, know I, I tried to figure it out, and I I couldn't. But like, something feels right that like, yeah, Veronica Voss should not be like the the last <laughs> part of this trilogy. Let's um, let's
0: let's move yeah. on to Lola. Lola okay. is is one of my, I it's solidly been when you ask me to list my five favorite films, it's always changing. But Lola and Texas Chainsaw Massacre are always in there. Those are like maybe those are my two favorite films of all time, if I'm being honest with myself. But yeah, those I, are two I, great I, movies. Yeah. I love this movie dedicated to my man, Alexander Klug opens with the photo of Adenauer listening to a record. Do you know what the first, do you remember what the first line of this movie is Martin?
1: First line of the
0: movie. He who has Uh, no house shall not build one. And hmm. why I found that interesting is because Maria Braun is all about her building her dream home for her and Herman with her career, which then of course blows up. It felt so pointed this time watching it where it's about, the The home as a metaphor for Germany and the homeland of trying to build a new home for the people who grew up, who came up in the war afterwards and their children. I that mean, these that's, movies... that's little
1: analogy you made, um, I guess, a couple minutes ago relative to when people are listening to this about uh, building their own houses. Like, it, it's a great metaphor for filmmaking also.
0: Yes. Well, Fassbender is the classic. I forget what filmmakers said this. But they don't see their films as being individual films It might have been Fassbender fucking said this, that they see their films as all be pieces of the house. One house is the roof and another is the windows and another is a gutter, right? That they are mm-hmm. you're building a house with their work. And Fassbender, if he didn't say that quote, I have no idea who said that quote. He's, ex- the best. Be, yeah. he's, he's the best example of it. I think he has no... When I'm talking about Veronica Voss isn't as good as Maria Braun, he doesn't have really super high highs and super low lows. He has a very pretty consistent body of work as far as quality and that they're all interesting and they're all messy. You know, that's mm-hmm. just what it is. Lola is the one that comes closest to not being messy to me, but also not being too stylistically gripped like veronica voss and corral it's the one that comes the the most clearly to being um perfect movie for him um but that's not the reason i like it i think if you made me pick objectively maria braun i think is a better movie objectively i just identify with this movie so much i just identify with the character of lola so so much it's funny
1: you say lola i'm I'm thinking like I, i identify more with um von Baum (laughs) also Lola I mean both of them I I feel for both of these characters but like Armin Müllerstall, the way he plays this character as being sort of idealistic and naive and uh, coming to grips with his own place in a system that he resents I I think is really powerful also like in, in addition to Lola's story, I feel like there's two kind of great characters at the center of this.
0: Yeah. Yes. As opposed to Maria Braun, which is one great character. Which is one character. And yeah. the textile magnate never rises to that level of being on sort of a Von Bon type character. You know, this. this yeah. one... It's very hard for me intellectually, stylistically, morally to connect Veronica Voss to the other two, whereas Lola and Maria Braun are very easy to connect to each other. There's just a lot of little stuff like like that... You know, she's living at home with her widowed mom, like Maria Braun at the beginning. And the Mm -hmm. implication is that the father died during the war. You know, this movie confirms it. But in both of them, you're supposed to think through where is the father? The father died. Did he die during the war? Oh, yeah. These people are Nazis. The absence of the father is there to remind you of the past. The absence creates the body of the past it creates the questions of the past. It wants to make you think through the past and in this movie too. You know, you also explicitly you get a reference von Baum as much as he's the good guy in this movie and the hero of this movie in some ways. He is also a Nazi. He retreated through Danzig. You know, like Mm -hmm. he's these people are very explicitly Nazis, although the movies very carefully avoid using the word Nazis and making any references to anti-Semitism. These are movies in which the past is not explicitly spoken of. It's very buried. It's very repressed. You know, it's something that everybody wants to move on from. But but Lola and Maria Braun, I find to be obviously similar characters too they're about they're they're doing the the picaresque thing of moving up through social strata through guile and cunning and sheer amoral desire to not you know immoral desire to to pursue what they want they they're very much similar things and in both movies he sets up the connection between prostitution and performance and terms of thinking about societies in which everyone is a prostitute you know yes and i'd say he thinks it's really sad that's something i get from both of these movies that we might be looking over is that he thinks to prostitute yourself and become subjugated to the power structure is really sad that it that it crushes you as
1: a human that it drains you out of emotions it creates a very strong parallel between prostitution and uh the reconst- like the literal reconstruction of uh germany with the people who were involved in building and that's uh what yeah. brings in von bomb like it's it's like a take us through the plot it's okay. blue it's blue angel with a building
0: with a, a... building
1: developer um mischner is that that a yeah
0: good building commissioner okay. yeah
1: i think he he's from east prussia he says like i think armin muller stahl really is from east prussia yeah uh, that's why you see him speaking Russian in some movies, like Eastern Promises. But uh, so he plays this building commissioner who comes to town and he wants to shake things up. There's uh, local
0: corruption. He and doesn't at same... really at the beginning. He wants to spur
1: development, right? Uh, and he, well, advancement
0: and recovery. He's and then he he's... runs
1: into the the corruption.
0: Yeah, but he's an extremely moral person at the beginning. He has a really yeah. moral sense, but his moral sense of the world is in harmony with the idea that Germany needs to recover. So he's like old fashioned. Think of the as the bad guy, Stuttgart, the billing developer, of the, the thing says that he's old fashioned in his personal life and very modern in his professional life. But he's also very old-fashioned in his professional life and very modern in his personal life, too. It's, yeah. it's, a, uh, it's a funny... Uh, it's a very good character. It's a very good character. But uh, the idea is basically that he seems like somebody who's going to be a hard-ass and get in the way of everything by getting caught up in the fine print, but actually turns out to be somebody who is very, very moral and moralistic, but knows how to overlook the fine print to make society function he's the perfect middle manager somebody who comes across as intimidating and a stickler for the rules who actually outows naturally to the power structure around him and it's his destruction when he he falls in love with lola who's a prostitute who's the prostitute
1: she's part of it is like uh shukart i guess trying to use her to get at him
0: uh, and uh, the second half. The first half yeah. is what kicks off the plot of the movie. Basically, is that Schuurt says, "Von Bonn, this new building instructor, would never kiss the hand of a lady like you. He's the kind of guy who kisses people's hands." She says, "Well, I want him to kiss my hand." He yep. says, "He'd never kiss somebody like you." And so they make a bet for thirty cases of champagne, or is it just thirty bottles, that Von Baum bon will kiss her hand. So there's that a statue dedication to uh i believe it's to stauffenberg right to the 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 famous from the, the tom uh, cruise valkyrie Cruz movie. tried
1: to kill hitler and didn't uh manage that but yeah, yeah. blew up <laughs> blew up an office building but, but um, there's got to have been a better way to do that plan that was not a <laughs>
0: but, but anyway. uh, but she comes to this statue dedication where the town is gathered around. Of course, the new building commissioner, Von Baum, is there. She walks up to him and says, are you Von Baum? And he says, I am. And she offers her hand out and he kisses it. And then she gets back without saying another word into her convertible and drives away. And then she sort of seduces him yeah. because she wants to be on the inside of things. She's a, a prostitute and and a, in a in a sort of classy Whorehouse. Although it's funny, one thing I was thinking watching this time, people always talk, uh, talk about how great this movie looks, but they talk about the whorehouse scenes where he's it's, intentionally trying to uh, conjure like the tasteless garishness, and, yeah. yeah, of it. And it's funny that people are like, "Oh, it looks so great," and it's like that scratch well, that's house what aesthetic. I mean when I
1: say like <laughs> the uh, Douglas Sirk movies don't look like they don't look like that. You know, yeah. they're not garish. And I, again, like I, I sort of think maybe it's closer to. Like those late period Nazi films that were in color, like um God, I yeah. forget the name, but Kohlberg is like the other the other one, but that's that's not really what I'm thinking of. Uh anyway, I'll I'm gonna remember it like a day later. <laughs> but uh so yeah, you have this uh romance that develops where he's in love with Lola and doesn't know that she's a prostitute. Eventually it kind of gets to the point where he's he's kind of working against the corruption that is all sort of linked back to Shukert who he owns the the brothel. He's he's kind of like the the big man in town, the like you said, the, the villain. <laughs>
0: but uh well, no, the woman owns it, but he buys it for her at the end.
1: Okay. She asks all right. for her. there's right. there's a madam yeah. who owns it. Okay, okay. Uh I wasn't sure about that. Well, like he's He's there. He's he's like the guy in charge for what what's going on in town. Like, um, it's set in is it set in Colberg? Yes, it's now. set in Colberg. Uh, yeah. So he's he's kind of the the figure that Baum is working against.
0: And then there's a sort of a third business person in the mix outside of Lolo, who is Eslen, who's the building commissioner's assistant, and he's like a political radical who hangs out with her for free, reading her sad poetry that depresses
1: her. Yeah, um, um, the, Matthias Fuchs. Well, the the big reveal, of course, is when that when Bomb Bomb finds out that Lola is actually a prostitute. You get that scene where like he, he goes to see her, and you get that like amazing look on her face. You know, you have this this sequence where he kind of comes to the conclusion that you know he's he still loves her anyway. Yeah. And they but, just but before
0: that, but before that, he decides he's going to take down the corrupt businessman. And go, and puts the files together and he's going to take them down and he takes yeah. up with the disarmament protesters. And when he goes to a journalist to blow the roof off it, the journalist is like, these are just like contracts. This, there's no scandal here. It's sure. just rich people trying to get, I don't even understand what you're trying to say to me. So he complete there's a great feint. That's like if the movie's divided into fourths, that's like the three quarters of the way through the movie where he's it pretends like he's going to have a moral awakening and blow the lid off of this stuff, right? Because his yeah. heart is so broken. But instead it doesn't work. You know, he's not able to affect change or rebellion or revolution in any way. The, his sense of revolution fails. And eventually he realizes he's still in love with her and capitulates and marries her knowing full well that she's the the, the private whore of this guy, Stukart, who he tried to make an enemy of and failed.
1: And the, the final scene after they've been married, it's not between Lola and Bon Baum; bon, It's between Lola and Stukart.
0: You know, well, it's, no. It's the a... very final scene is Eslyn, Lola's daughter by Schuchert, uh, Maria Louise's daughter by Schuchert, and Von Baum. That's the very final scene. I mean, the ending. How do you feel about
1: the ending? Is it is it tragic? Is it, I feel I feel like is it's is it tragic.
0: I feel like the point of this movie is about again connecting love to moral and political systems, and this movie is explicitly about how love can define your moral systems and destroy them. How your sense of self can be both defined and destroyed by love, right? Yes. And that's very much what this movie is about. And that love is a kind of politics. And I think it's a lytical, cynical in the sense of him maybe critiquing his own work in Maria Braun of you can love as a purely moral act. Um, You can also have love be divorced from morality and allow you to buy into the worst subjugational corrupt systems in the world which he does it's sort of intended as a counterpoint to some of the points he makes in maria braun um i
1: mean there is something it's yeah like in not, not it's entirely. a movie about
0: about caring about things that will destroy you whether it's love sure. or politics yeah you know.
1: i mean there is something like that complicates my feelings at the end where you know, there is something maybe positive in the idea that, like he can love her for who she is, regardless of anything else. But that also means kind of accepting this broken system, you know that it's it like means the, accepting that hand the hand villains hand.
0: get away with it. It means yeah. the bad people are going to get away with it. I think about that a lot with the um Errol Morris film on Rumsfeld, which people hate because right. because the theme of the film is, Rump people, some bad people get away with it and there's nothing you can do he will sleep soundly for the rest of his life in a giant bed and a beautiful house around people who adore him and you're not going to get him and that's part of what this movie is about too is him learning that his place is as a middle manager below those people and he can't get those people at all, He can't get them. He can't even get the real love of Lola, right? Because she mm-hmm. proves to be too indentured to the system, too subjugated by the system to express real love. So I do think it's tragic and that his love is real, but hers is not. Hers yeah. is completely empty. And this movie is about that there is a pit in our souls that can't be filled with stuff and attempts to fill it with stuff actually just like items and objects and money and power. It's actually just digging us down into deeper and darker places and not even bad power, but like revolutionary power. You know, like attempting to fill your soul with the idea of revolution and change takes him to a darker place than if he had just accepted the inherent subjugation and impression of himself from the beginning. That's a very bitter irony. It's a very, very tough irony for somebody who thinks politically to swallow. And I think that's why this movie is so uh, amazing in that way. And it's funny, too. He uses, like in all that heaven allows, the television, the buying of the television as a symbol of giving up, right? To just yeah, sit around the, and fall asleep and a give
1: spinter and just
0: yeah, but like, in this movie, yeah. but in this movie, it's like you'd be much better off if you could just give up and watch that TV. it's yeah. a, it's an ironic take on that. Like if he just stays in front of the TV and doesn't go to the brothel that night, he's ten thousand times happier a person. You know, if you just stay home and watch the TV, and this, you know, a,
1: you know, like Lola, in that way, it's like I feel like, you know, if if he's saying something about post-war Germany, it's that like, you know, Lola is maybe the the spirit of Germany in that way. Where, you know, if you're like von Baum bon and you're hoping for real change and improvement, you know, you're going to end up accepting this country that. Uh, has these connections to maybe bad people who uh you you can't change you can't reform and can't get her to be something else you know it's like
0: well it's another story about a victim uh, who becomes a victimizer somebody who's on the bottle of the uh, bottom of the social pyramid and when she ascends she does not become a good person she becomes somebody happy to to victimize von bond you know, she becomes somebody to happen, happy to victimize those around her. And I think it's a contrast with Maria Braun. When Maria Braun's heart gets broken, when she thinks everything's over with her husband and she loses her love, that's when she becomes vicious and vile, right? And empty. When this woman, when when Lola, this woman, when Lola gets true love given to her, a real love given to her, that's when she becomes most vile and evil the love doesn't redeem her it gives her the power and opportunity to become cruel and to ascend and i think that's what's extremely fascinating about this movie is sort of the it's got an incredible cynicism mixed with a deep belief in the power and meaning of love it's a very ironic movie it's built in so many different counterpoints to itself it's such a contrapuntal film in that way
1: I know it's it's hard to kind of unwrap a little bit, but like, well, I guess like so often when we talk about love as a concept, it's it's like about the redeeming powers of love and the virtues of love, and this is like the the damnation of love <laughs> where you're.
0: But it's also about love as a moral system. Where if you yeah. take that premise of Maria Braun as love as a moral system in unto itself, this is him saying, well is it a moral system that's in conflict with political systems? And the answer turns yeah. out is no, it's an entirely different framework for understanding reality, right? That it's just, and in fact, if you would try and apply the fury of a broken heart and true love and the humiliation of Maria Braun, if you try and act on her behest, by getting the crows and the vultures and the bird of prey and getting them you'll fail you won't be able to do it it doesn't have a redeeming power it doesn't have a framework that allows you to change things and allows you to impact the world it's a personal framework that impacts yourself and affects you but it's not necessarily a framework
1: that changes the world in any way i think like that to me is the most tragic aspect of the film versus like you know say the movie had had a more typical tragic ending where you know, maybe Von Baum murders Lola or they, they both die in a gas explosion or something like that. I don't think that that point would hit as hard as it does. Yes. The fact that they have to live that way, you know, I, I think that's the tragedy.
0: Yes, absolutely. I absolutely think that's the case. But it's also just such a beautiful and tender film because Mueller stahl and Tsukawa give such great complex performances. There's
1: like shots. um, You can tell like Fassbender just, just loves Armin Mueller stahls blue eyes. Oh, can't get The way he gets the, the eye lights just perfect and the blue gels and everything like that. And then I, I, like, I really love uh, the sequence where they go on the date and you have uh, like Von Baum under the blue lights, these like baby blue lights and, uh, Barbara Sakawa under the like pink lights and just yeah. how that looks is is like it's gorgeous in in its own way you know these kind of bright candy colors and it's it's uh, it's like the the colors of a dream you know
0: yeah and he gives them such space especially her space to be funny and sly and surprising as an actress I feel like Maria Braun as a character is a much more interiority she's much yeah. more zipped up inside of herself whereas Lola's like a messy drink being spilled by a drunk lady. That's the object she is for much of the movie. And But he gives her lots of opportunity to be funny and smart, too, on top of it. She's also somebody who's very elegant and stylish and very in control and self-possessed. It's just such a great character. And Tsukawa nails the hell out of it. It's crazy to me that uh, Zekul was made famous by Veronica Voss, and sort of that's the one people think is the great performance. And Barbara Sukawa, you don't hear well, mentioned among I mean, the great Fastbender performances. It's exactly backwards to me. You
1: no, know, I, I completely agree with you. And I think like Veronica Voss, I don't know how much of it's it's the character's written, but I always feel like like she should be more of a of a movie star, you know. And I, I know it's hard to like cast an actor to play a movie star kind of a thing, but like yeah. it, it feels like she doesn't quite have that thing that That people will obsess over with real movie stars, natural,
0: natural charisma. I will tell you, there's a. I've met a bunch of movie stars at my former job, but there's like some of them. Like when I met Isabella Rossellini, right? It's so unsettling her charisma to be within like 20 feet of here. Her is like passing through this force field of charisma that's that's like you feel like you're gonna. throw up. You're just like, I understand why people would scream when they saw Elvis or the Beatles. It's that same kind of thing that some people have. And she's not even doing anything. It must be miserable for her because she's just fucking standing there. You know what I mean? And people around you are like, oh, my God. And it's really like she has it. And you can just put her on screen And she has it, you know, she's she probably hasn't had as big of a career because she's not actually a super great actress. She's just a natural movie star, you know. And I think that you're exactly right that 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 Zekyll lacks that quality and Veronica Voss of just I would watch this person in anything. This is her. Veronica Voss is in a movie? Well, that movie will be a hit. And she just doesn't yeah. have that quality to her. She doesn't have that movie star charisma. I agree completely. But then on top of it, it's kind of like a thin jittery performance where she hits sort of cliche notes I know. to she, convey she's kind of... craziness or to convey yeah. anxiety. You know?
1: I know. It's, it's this...
0: Whereas Sukawa is always very, very surprising and funny. Yeah. she's She constantly delivers lines in a way that you're like oh you know that just
1: i think she said like she was even surprised to have been cast by fassbender in this like um because she was in i mean the the, the main thing I, got, I kind of knew her from outside of this was uh berlin Alexanderplatz, but she mentioned how like typically the characters she played were these sort of strong tough kind of independent women and um. Uh, then her character in Berlin Alexanderplatz was completely not, not that but, soft uh, and sweet. Yeah. Soft and sweet. And like, I guess she said, like he, he just saw something in her that um, wasn't getting asked to play in, in theater and plays and like, you know, her, just her look, like she has a little bit of like, um, you know, the strong jaw and you could see why somebody would want to cast her in these severe roles, but like, she is sweet and she is, tender in a way that uh, I I think makes Lola work really well as a character like her performance is really incredible I think great in the role and just again talking about like the charisma of these types of figures um, like uh, my German friend Debbie she said that the character of Lola reminded her a lot of um, this woman named Rosemarie Nithraubit who was like a famous uh, prostitute in post-war Germany who she was basically like a celebrity uh, and uh, she she was murdered, and, you know, there was this whole tragic end to her. But, like, it, it just got me thinking, like, just what she was saying about her personality, that, you know, there were these kind of sort of celebrity prostitute figures like a, like a Lola character. You know, I think it, it's maybe not so different from a movie star like we were talking about with uh, Veronica Voss. Well, it's also an obvious
0: reference to Lola Montez, who's, like, the, yeah. one of the most famous
1: courtesans. Yeah, Lola Montez, which... Um, passbender references like all the way back to like the beginning of his career i was i think it's uh american fred i was watching again the other day and uh there's a little reference to lola montez in it and you can tell like offals yeah i definitely see more
0: you. more offals in this movie than i do cirque this definitely movie has more yeah. of laurent Th- those and... like
1: blue yeah lights from lola montez and
0: yeah Lola Matez, Laurent, Laplacier. It has more of of those in it than it does Cirque. There's no question. But you also, it's funny. I'm thinking you don't hear Ophuls referenced. We talked about this though, how Ophuls is somehow becoming like a forgotten figure in a way I don't understand. Like he was really important to Fast Bender's generation as well. Like he was one of the like important, important art directors. Like, okay, if you seriously like movies, you, you have to like Ophuls. He had that sort of, place in in the culture which it's i don't see anymore like i and again we talked about this with hopefuls i think a lot of people think fassbender's movies are going to be like perverse deeply radical button pushing transgressive things and they're not the same way i think a lot of people think hopefuls movies are going to be like dry european stately you know, like uh, slow yeah. moving. You know, I mean, type I, I listened European. to one podcast
1: which uh, said, like, "Oh, the awfuls movies are too bourgeois." That was kind of the, the dismissal of them. So, yeah. I, like, I, I think some people have that kind of attitude, and not that, like, "Oh, these are movies about," uh, you know,
0: that are really fun and, about, and funny and sexy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: funny and se- I, more people need to watch Laurent. That movie's great. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah like, I, I think you're right that like. He, especially looking at Lola, it has more in common with uh, Lola Montez and Ophuls than than Cirque, really.
0: I guess I just have a few more little small things with Lola sure. that I noticed. One is that um, we should mention that, that late in the film, there's another scene where a speech takes up much of the soundtrack, a political speech, and sort of drowns out the um, the the dialogue of the characters, and in that case, it's not another Adenauer speech; it's a uh, Ludwig Erhard speech. And Ludwig Erhard was the minister of economic affairs from forty nine to sixty three, and he's generally seen as the architect of the economic miracle. That he's generally seen as the guy who made it happen somehow. And um, so, he, and he gives a much more like fiery, aggressive speech than I was expect for that kind of person. I think he's sort of, I think what um, Fassbender's trying to tell us is sort of like he's a Von Baumish type character, someone you think of being like a middle manager functionary who's actually quite like, Astringent, yeah, like uh <laughs> sort of uh ir- irascible, you know, risable type person who you can get worked up and get to sort of talk in these almost Hitlerian tones, you know, which definitely when when uh von Baum gets political, he he does, he does take on that very strict you know, German way of talking, you know, which I think is is kind of funny. And I think you're supposed to draw connections between von Baum and, and Earhart in that way. I was also thinking when I watched it this time, the scene where she approaches him through the stunned crowd to get him to kiss her hand. Yeah. There's a very similar moment in Maria Braun where Maria goes up to the soldier she eventually has the relationship with through the stunned crowd to ask yeah. him to dance where everybody stops and sort of there are these moments that remind me of Ali fear it's the soul of these moments when people push through the crowd to do what they really want to do regardless of what the world around them is going to react and sort of leave people in stunned silence, but they know that their action is going to make a spectacle of themselves. Right. It's it's that feeling of being watched when you do something radical, not politically radical, but radical to your heart, you know, sort of the radical heart actions that are going to have an audience that's just as judgmental and, and maybe more judgmental than when you're a protester where they just want to ignore you and want you to go away.
1: It's also making me think of of the scene where uh, Maria Brown's husband returns, just how long he watches her for. Yeah, it goes on for such a long time, and it's just like you get more and more uncomfortable, like waiting to see how how this is going to blow up. How is he going to react? How you know you have these three parties, and it's it's just like waiting for that that um, shoot to drop, which is one reason why I think that scene is a little bit um, unimpressive. The way it <laughs> wraps up with with the bottle being smashed on the head, you sort of are expecting maybe something a little bit more dynamic or I mean, if, if Fassbender was going to use some like shocking gore like that, that would be the spot to use it or, you know, just something aggressive, yeah. something stylistic.
0: I yeah. always think with that scene, when I am like, if I were writing that, it'd be cool to have him. And this is why I'm no Fassbender see her witness that for that long. But instead of coming at the end, just turn around and leave from the movie. And she never it's sees him never and never know back. he lives. Yeah. Um and knowing that he's given up on her and gone, I think would be really a fascinating take and turn on that. Another sort of side note that I feel like I just have to to tell you about Gunther Kaufman, who we mentioned, who plays the the yes. black soldier who speaks English in all the movies. And it's funny because, you know, he's, you know. Has a, a an accent, a, yeah. a German accent, in which I'm the American speaking English it, to you.
1: It, it's fine. It's, and, it's and, like it's, <laughs> yes, it's very funny.
0: But gunther <laughs> Kaufman, yeah. you know, he lived Maria Braun. Do you know this?
1: No, I I don't really know anything about his personal
0: life. Okay, he was one of Fassbender's lovers, but
1: yes, I I know that part. His,
0: you know, like in the movie, he was the son of a German woman and a black American soldier, right? Like what happens Mm -hmm. in the movie. But more importantly, he went to jail for murdering an accountant, but was exonerated when it was found out he was covering up for his wife in two (laughs) thousand, in like early two thousand. Can you fucking believe that his accountant had uncovered financial fraud that his wife was doing? They essentially defrauded this accountant because they needed money for her cancer treatments and his wife was dying of cancer. And so he um she ended up getting the accountant. She didn't murder the accountant. She hired some other people to murder this accountant oh once after they were found out. But he went to jail for it. He, like took credit for it. And then, after her death, it turned out it all came out. An investigation came out that he had actually just been covering up from her for her, which is the exact plot of Maria Braun. Isn't that fucking crazy? It's it's too weird. <laughs> the other thing that I also realized, because Armin Muellerstahl, stahl he's playing the screenwriter yeah. husband and Veronica Voss, and then he's von Bonn and Lola. I was thinking about how I, the first I ever heard of him was in with Shine in 1996. I had never okay. heard of anything that he was in. He won the Academy Award for it, and I feel like, and then just settled into a life of all foreign actors who win an Academy Award. Uh, like just pick up the liar
1: and like. Yeah, he plays yeah.
0: like, or he plays like the evil cardinal. Oh yeah, in, in, the, the, in like the George in the, Clooney, in the, Tom, uh, in the Tom Hanks movie, you know, like, yeah, yeah well, just being the, like the
1: George Clooney, Nicole kitman
0: Oh, peacemaker that peacemaker, he's, in. he's yeah. in. stuff
1: like that. Yeah, we like you need the the European, yeah, uh, character
0: <laughs> at, at the top of the yeah. food chain. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, uh, th- th- this happens to like a lot of of uh, very talented. European actors who like Hollywood doesn't know quite what to, it's like I, I guess you're the villain Rutger Hauer we don't know what to do with you we, you're, you know and they kind of easily get uh, pigeonholed into these types of roles yeah.
0: But, yeah but I was thinking it's funny because then I was like oh well he must have had a really incredible career before you know he was sort of rediscovered by America right because he's in like he's in like the um Jim Jarmusch movie right yeah. Uh, a, a night on earth. He's in Soderbergh's Kafka. Yeah. So there's a moment uh, where he sort of gets rediscovered by Americans in the early 90s, like leading mm-hmm. up to Shine. But I was like, he must have been a really famous German actor who's in all of this stuff. But he really doesn't have. I think I looked He has he like these two movies. Yeah. He has like Lola and Veronica Voss. It's not yeah. like he's this really storied career it's it's kind of funny so i went from the impression of like oh he's that guy who won an oscar that it's just like in crap to like no he's a really serious german actor to like oh no he's got these two good movies these are Hermann mueller stahl's two real masterpieces this is really what it's
1: all based on for him that's okay you, you get two good ones you're fine you can just yeah. post <laughs>
0: Although he uh, he did, I always think about he played Franz Ferdinand in that *Espanzabo* uh, movie, and that's always so. Whenever I think about Franz Ferdinand, like I picture Armin Mueller-Stahl. at any rate, okay, because I have no idea what the real Franz Ferdinand looked like. If you made me draw a picture of who caused World War One, I, you just I would draw a big mustache. I would draw Armin Mueller-Stahl and be like, "That's the man responsible for World War One." I. I think what these movies ask, if I had to sum it up that I'm not even sure if he's aware of it, is, is it possible to love if you're a German? I think that that's really what he's asking himself for his generation, my parents and me, is it possible to love or is what we've done preclude us from a healthy existence ever, you know? Is revolution necessary or are we able to love? And I really think that's his question.
1: I that. mean, you talk about like German culture and it's like, it's this weird mix of like the most romantic culture. You know, you think of like romanticism and all these romantic ideals and, you know, German music and all of this stuff. It's like the most romantic. And then like you think of, especially like looking at that post-war period, how transactional and professional and businessmanlike, like and, you know, you get this weird juxtaposition in this like German identity, I, I guess, of like extreme romanticism and extreme sort of repression at the same time, maybe
0: also something that I was thinking about that's very fascinating to me is um Fassbender always refuses to talk about his childhood. He mentions that he lived in a foster home for a while, but he really steadfastly refuses to mention it. And these are movies that are very explicitly about him as an artist, his relationship to his parents' generation and thinking about his parents' generation, right? But he doesn't have parents and kids in his movies, right? I can mm-hmm. think of there's the daughter in Chinese roulette, right? The the daughter with the that's handicapped that has the the braces that she needs to walk. And then there's the daughter in this movie, right? The the daughter between Shukart yeah. and Lola. But he really yeah. steadfastly <laughs> um, avoids talking about any connection between his generation and his parents' generation. And one of the only depictions, there's a lot of depictions of adult children Right. Yeah. With their parents like going to um, visit
1: their, their parents once yeah. they're adults, like it's in, uh, um, yeah, Fier, it's the soul, and there's a couple like that.
0: Y- yeah. Yeah. And about like those generate his parents' generation relationship to their parents. But I was thinking it's funny. One of the few times he has somebody of his own generation deal with their parents is in Sotten's Broughton, where Kurt Robb goes to like bully money out of his like little mole people, mom and dad. He's like, he's just like this violent artist who goes to like his little like timid middle-class parents and essentially like shakes them down. And it's a really, it's like, that's one of the few moments because that movie so much Fassbender pouring out his own brain, like just drilling a hole into his head and pouring the goop out onto the celluloid that it's like, I wonder if he feels some like very fundamental humiliation about himself in relationship to his parents that he literally can't address in his artwork. And I think that that's something that it's fascinating to think about these movies as all being part of the project of trying to address this thing that he can't address in himself, that he's having a really hard time addressing in himself, which is that like, what were my parents? You know, like all these hipsters, he doesn't like kids also. I'm sick of it. I'm bored with that. That's 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 uh, that's tired, not wired. You know what I'm saying? Sure. <laughs> I don't know, actually. Oh, no, there's a certain class of people. I guess you're not around them, but there's a certain class of well, people. I, I don't know. So you
1: you meet, you meet people really.
0: who are like 37 in New York City who are like, I want to go to brunch. Kids would get in the way of that, and it's like I've been to fucking brunch. Nothing interesting happens at brunch. Literally, I can stay out all night, yeah? You know what happens when you stay out drinking all night? Nothing. Nothing interesting happens whatsoever. At any rate, Martin, what's our big summation and sum up? What's your rating of them? Rating? Rank rank them. Rank them in order.
1: Oh, well, it's uh, Lola, Maria Braun, Veronica Boss. I agree.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's a Pink Smoke Podcast consensus ranking.
1: How, how rare is that? <laughs> uh, maybe you can slick uh, stick uh, Lily Marlene in there. I, I don't know. <laughs> just that, it in. I
0: feel like I feel like swapping out Lily Marlene for Veronica Voss. I feel the same way. I
1: I like Lily Marlene more. I, I and it's even though it's not the post-war period, it just feels like an important kind of dovetail into. Maria Braun and I have no
0: idea uh, why that movie is so hard to see and find.
1: I, I found it on YouTube. I, oh, <laughs> I that makes like, sense. It's just one of those ones that, like, um I, I think, like the second uh, Criterion or whoever puts out a uh, Blu-ray, people are going to go crazy for it. But uh, yeah,
0: well, there's something wrong with its rights because Wellspring didn't own it when they bought got all of the Fassbender films out oh. and the Fassbender Foundation doesn't seem to be overseeing it. Fassbender Foundation is, well, was for a long time run by Julia Lorenz and they were instrumental in uh, preserving and and re-releasing and and stewarding these films forward so the fassbender foundation i always feel like fassbender is a really well protected director because he actually has this foundation working very coherently on his behalf to get all of these films together and restore and shepherd them together restorations
1: for a lot of these films um...
0: And just you can buy yeah. if you're Criterion or whoever, you can buy all of the rights for the majority of them very easily, and you have one person to deal with and sort of packaging them and putting them together. Same thing if you're programming a series and want to do repertory work. It's very easy and coherent to get Fassbender together in that way, in a way that it's like not for Boonwell. You know, right. I feel
1: like Boonwell. You have all those making films that yeah. are hard to hard to get a hold of and. Yeah. And I, I think when we talked about Bunuel on the podcast a while ago, it's like, well, I'm going to watch this one on YouTube. Yeah. In, it's at, in, uh, low quality. So,
0: yeah. Like Bunuel's a little neglected because he doesn't have that stewardship and that Fassbender's increasing reputation. His, I feel like his reputation grows each year is because his work is being properly stewarded. I know a lot of the anti-theater people really hate Julianne Lawrence, and she certainly said a lot about her relationship to Fassbender that does not hold up to scrutiny, and her being such an enabler at the time of his death. A lot of people who care about him hold her in contempt for her role in that. But I find when I met her in person, I found her to be incredibly charming and just a perfect and fierce advocate for Fassbender. uh, That
1: that was the thing. Like I watched um, one of the the special features on, I forget if it was on one of these movies or one of the other Fassbender movies that kind of popped in leading up to this. And like, she's so passionate about his films that it's kind of infectious, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. use some uh, gross uh, word but like is her enthusiasm makes you excited about his films even like veronica voss we're talking about like the fades and stuff like that I'm yeah like, oh like yeah that, that's really cool that makes me want to go back and rewatch it so i think it's good to have somebody like that in your corner yes I know and one Fassbender of and also, one of his
0: like... um really important consistent collaborators she's yeah. there with him to the end like pierre robin and those so are think, basically uh, the two that are like
1: there for the bulk of it like she was know? there even before she was his editor i think she was just like assisting when his film's basically didn't require much editing they were like yeah uh, you know you, you shoot the scenes you stick them together there's no there's hardly any editing required but she was there and kind of learned um uh, so uh, like with fast i think there's also like a lot of kind of rumor and gossip and stuff like that that still kind of hangs around that's that, like i don't know how much of it's true i don't know how much of it's
0: yeah Uh, I feel like what what sums Fastbender up is that the photo you always see of him to to show like what a freaking wild man he was, is him in that that crazy leopard print suit. You know what I'm talking about? The the photo. Yeah. And but that suit is a costume from kamikaze 1989, which is the film he was making when he died. That's not how he dressed, that's a costume. From a movie where he's supposed to be dressed like a lunatic. And I feel like that's Fassbender in a nutshell, where it's like, wow, look how crazy he dresses. That guy was an absolute lunatic. And it's like, well, (laughs) you're sort of getting caught up in an image. He was definitely a lunatic, but it was in a different way than wears a novelty leopard print suit. You know, like it's definitely, I feel like that's. That's Fassbinder in a nutshell. And I would just, I think people also get intimidated by the sheer volume of his work and where to start and what's yeah. interesting and all yeah, of that. I think that's true, also. And I, I would say, especially because with a lot of interesting filmmakers, the big one is not the one that's going to make you fall in love with them as a filmmaker, you know? And so you don't want to go to Marriage of Maria Braun or something like that. But in this case, I think this trilogy is a really great place to start.
1: Sure. There was a a biopic about Fassbender that came out a couple of years ago, and I never saw it because I, I sort of felt like when I watched the trailer, that there's something really kind of like unpleasant about taking a really interesting artist and doing like a really generic kind of yeah. biopic about them. It, it happens a lot, I feel like.
0: I only um, want to watch a Fassbender biopic if, if it's like a superstar, the Karen Carpenter type story, where he's played by a bratwurst that's been injected with water and cut open.
1: <laughs> just, just pure bloat.
0: just um, Just like human bloat and gristle, screaming at actresses and then sleeping with their boyfriends. I, I would uh, I would watch a Todd Haynes
1: film about Rainer Burner Fastbender. Fassbender. I think
0: I would watch a Todd Haynes film cool. about Fassbender in 1998. I don't know, yeah, two thousand three. That, that's a good point. <laughs> I watch a Todd Haynes film about.
1: Him. But even like even some of his like like one of my favorite things that Todd Haynes has done in recent years was his Mildred Pierce miniseries. Oh, and it's I think so like,
0: fucking good. I'm being really so unfair. Mildred like, Pierce and Carol are very you know, and,
1: and like Mildred Pierce, you can see like he is kind of like. Harkening back to Berlin, Alexander Alexanderplatz and Maria Braun. And you can see, I think, a lot of Aspender in that movie, in that show movie miniseries, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I know, feel but... like I would be into, I'd be really into, is it called I'm Not There, his Bob Dylan movie? Yeah. What's, I think I would be into or that. I'm still here. Or I'm... I'm,
1: I don't know. I, I get that mixed up with that with a generic title,
0: title about a musician I could not give one half of one fuck yeah. about. And so, but I think if he did that kind of approach to a fastbender thing, I'd actually be into it, as opposed to like, uh, don't make me watch a movie about Bob Dylan just because I like you, Todd <laughs> Ains.
1: Sure.
0: Which was I, the whole time I was just like, Oh my God, it's still about Bob Dylan.
1: This whole I thing's know, gonna uh, be about Bob Dylan. Like Todd Haynes, something he said when he he made uh, Velvet Underground that I thought was really interesting he's like the the thinly veiled biopic is like a lost art form in that <laughs> a thinly veiled biopic can be way more interesting than like an authentic biopic because you know you can you can shoot the rumor you can shoot the yeah the, the you know like maybe it didn't actually happen that way but it, this is what it felt like or you know that's yeah it's the way it felt and the, the way that it was significant to me not the way that it was like sort of biographically correct yeah, um, you know, which is is something I always think about when I, I look at these uh, biopics, and I'm always and even
0: in... and even the ones we're talking about with yeah. with Veronica Voss and Lola that these exactly. are are thinly veiled biopics that I think are
1: are more you know, interesting. Like I, I think uh, I, I I don't know how much more interesting uh, Veronica Voss is than a, a simple schmidt biopic would be but you know there's probably at least a couple scenes in veronica voss that i I think are like i think marginally more interesting
0: think about like for higher gus van sant doing a sybil schmidt movie you know what i I mean
1: uh, there's there's an
0: extremely uninteresting version of that that, that, that's what
1: i'm saying like for for my issues with veronica voss that we we touched on like i I think it is an interesting film like there's interesting scenes and interesting stuff in there that I, i don't know you could if you could get if you just had like a sort of standard expose biopic but um, not remake but like I I would love to do something like uh, like my own version of Veronica Boss someday like I, I think that's the kind of film that I would be interested in making my own
0: all right thank you for listening everyone to us talking fast bender thank you for being on the show martin and oh, as i'm sure people me. have noticed you're you're on the show a lot these days that's going to continue yeah and- i
1: always learn something every time i'm on the show it's it's always a pleasure um- well
0: that's that's the purpose of this show is for us all to maybe educate the listener a bit.
1: I don't care about the listener. The listener can go to hell. You're listening to our conversation. This is for my benefit. If you get something out of this, good on you. But I don't. I don't care.